from the Shelf by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 10 through 22 of The Citadel of the Autark. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron. And in this war-torn battlefield, hanging out with the dogmen are Michael and Austin. I'm not coming out there. <laughs> I'm going to stay in here with the gold. Come out. Nope. No, it'd be against my honor to come out there. You're in a you're in an armored carriage, and we're getting just decimated over here. Yeah, that's honorable yeah. to me. Yeah, I'm riding my destrier around in circles as part of a fun initiation game right here in the middle of the battlefield. Hey, buddy, nice shot. I like your not horse. <laughs> it doesn't have beautiful talons. I love the talons of your not horse. Woof. <laughs> I love its beautiful teeth that hang out. It's fearsome. And- it's, and thankfully, they're not metal tipped. Be careful up there. It will somehow kick at you while you ride it. Yeah. Uh, don't, I can't tell you how. I don't know what it is, what sort of strange appendage extra it has that can whip up woof at you. But uh, whew, good luck. I like them dog men. I'm a dog. I'm a dog guy. Yeah. Well, he says good. he says it isn't a blend. But that from second to second, it will seem more dog-like. They will seem more dog-like as people than human. That they don't. It isn't a werewolf. No. It's that mm-hmm. like caught in the right light, you know, in the right motion, in the right from the right angle, mm-hmm. you really get the dog self. And I Kinda think it, closer to a jackal wear. <laughs> correct. <laughs> right. And uh, except that even the jackal wear never really becomes human, and this these people do. They become just kind of like. Human you know, people should go listen to our bonus sode on the Dungeons and Dragons monster manual to understand what a jackalware is. But here, I feel like in the audio format, the way that you communicate, oh, right, it's a, it's a dog guy talking, it's just interrupt with dog sound every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the way you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta yeah. do like the, the jowly head shake. Yeah, no, I don't do Foley. That's a different, I'm not the Foley group. That's someone else. I just do. It's a different union. It's a different union. So I can do ARF. I can do woof. I can do bark. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Can you growl? I can go. I can go growl. But anything more that, even if I put the R in the back of my throat too much, that's Foley. I'm stepping Mm -hmm. on someone else's toes. I can mark a growl. I can say, drop a growl in here, please. And then someone, a Foley, you know, a great Foley artist could come in. And, uh, hey Foley, can we get that uh, growling? Can we get the growling right here. I'm gonna say uh, uh, I'm not coming out there, and then drop the growling. Ready? I'm not coming out there. Growling, right? And that's where the growl would go. Great. Yeah, that's a little peek behind the. People don't understand how podcasts get made. <sighs> mm-hmm. It's a it's a collaboration. Yeah, yeah, we got a staff of about 17, 18. Sometimes we pull in a couple interns yeah. Yeah. to get these things out the door. Every time uh, you hear like uh, pages turning or like my chair squeaking, that's me. Yep. I had to call that out. Be like, hey, uh, Foley, yeah, put in the chair squeak right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Normally we have the AD around to do that, but yeah. uh, sometimes we have to do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Just for our research team. Um, I don't really yeah. know anything that I say. I'm, I'm working on a script, right? So uh, yeah. it's really useful to have that script in front of us. I, I, you know, I don't want to undercut myself. I've, of course, read the summaries, uh, but the yeah. researchers really read this book. Yeah, they do a great job. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we've had to cut that team down from 10 to 9, mm-hmm. uh, d- you know, due to interest rate. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Goofery mm-hmm. going on in <laughs> Biden's America. But uh <laughs> 
you know, hopefully that's it's going to go the other way at some point. So I believe get those interest rates down. Yeah, yeah. And chat GPT will be even better. So then we'll have like several robots on staff. That'll be good. Yeah, it's going to be great. Hey, uh, gear shift here. Yeah. Uh, an, an alternate bit I thought of for the opening of this episode is uh, the three designers sitting around the table trying to figure out how to make the vehicle sequence <laughs> of of escaping <laughs> the Asians with the uh, with the armed carriage. Uh-huh. How to make that entertaining and good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not just boring and terrible. Yeah, I mean, I you mean like as if, as if it were a video game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, I guess I guess the scene starts with a QTE. We're gonna. Uh-huh. I was thinking we're quick gonna, time events. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're gonna yeah. do some triggers here, all alternating triggers for uh, getting it out of the mud. Uh, L two is going to be the people pulling, right? And of course, we assigned uh, to different groups, right? That's right. That's right. They're assigned to to different groups there, and then you got to like do some shooting from the top of the carriage. I was thinking a classic turret sequence. You know, you don't ever get to use the ACN weapons except for this one moment. You get the purple plasma blaster. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's mm-hmm. going to be really exciting for people. And it's got kind of the bowcaster uh, yep. timing to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good bowcaster. Yeah. Are you a well, fo- that was Wait foley. a second. Are you a Foley? Oh, that was Foley we dropped in. <laughs> yeah, wow. that was Foley. Yeah. I got Thank him right you. here, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Brad, our Foley guy. <laughs> yeah, people don't know about this, yeah. right? We each but, uh, it, foley and, it's like, and it's actually the Brad you think it is, by the way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Whichever uh, one. <laughs> Yeah, moonlighting. Uh, yeah, what people don't know is like I record from because we know that we all record remotely. Mm-hmm. Everyone's aware of that, mm-hmm. but I'm the one recording in the business complex. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, of course, I we've rented out most of a WeWork facility, and uh, you know, thankfully that's getting cheaper by the day. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, they're all here with me. You know, I get I get that local right. amount of time, and right. when I want, so here I'm going to do it again. I'm going to point at Brad. Three, two, one. <laughs> Yeah, good one, Brad. That's great work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's you definitely would get the turret sequence there for sure. Is there like a negotiation at the end with like, do you betray the the Asians or not? As I say, there's got to be a speech check here somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Let I mean, me, that's what we got to figure out. Paragon or Renegade. Let me tell you, here's my suggestion. You, whatever mm. choice you make, you give the player the illusion that they were going to make a choice. Maybe you can change, change some trust values. But then we have the angel come down, the... the dual wielding pistol angel um, (laughs) and she will just like tear everything up. So it's like, we don't have to, the outcome is the same no matter what, right? You're going to go, you're going to go back with your unit. Um, That way we don't have to worry too much of it. It's like diamond shaped, right? You don't have to worry too much Mm -hmm. about it getting away from you and having to account for the differences in the future. But if you got your trust up high enough with the Asians, maybe you can unlock like a special cut scene right before the end game where you run back into some of them and they go, I remember you cut a good deal with us. And there was Mm -hmm. another guy who betrayed us, not you. Right. And then they help mm-hmm. you fight the final boss or something, you know, or they give you a buff. That yeah. way we don't have to animate them in the final boss fight. But they give you, they That's say right. the AC and they, right. they, they give, give you correct you, thought. They give you correct thought, right, which gives mm-hmm. you like a damage buff for 30 yeah. minutes or something. Plus 10%. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, uh, let, let me, let me say two things about that. Uh, <laughs> highest compliment I can play that I can uh, pay to a video game. I've been playing Alan Wake 2. Mm, sure. Mm-hmm. Any of this that we just talked about could happen in Alan Wake 2. <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't be surprising. Oh. It would just be like, oh, here we are. Here we're doing it. Alan Wake meeting the Asians. I can like picture it very clearly in my mind. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alan Wake. I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I guess is Alan Wake kind of the close? Like, I know obviously there this there are particular things that they mm-hmm. are going for, particular references to horror writers yeah. like Stephen King. I hear mm-hmm. the new one is even more Twin Peaksy in places. Oh, Control yeah. obviously has its its priors and things like the X Files, um, but. Is not the remedy verse kind of the, the the most Wolfian thing in the sense that like it has a lot of the metafictional stuff going on here? Like there's a GW equivalent in Alan Wake two in some ways, right? Oh, there. Yeah, oh yeah. There's all kinds of guy. There's a there's a, a thing that has happened in the Alan Wake verse, right? Over sure. the course of several games, in which a guy who was was a poet originally, Thomas Zane, is now just a filmmaker. Great, love it. Incredible. And he's like the guy who write, wrote game. reality into existence, Ugh. you know, like a billion years ago. Um, I play this know, game. He, I have to make Bluff City season three. I need to be yeah. thinking metafictionally <laughs> immediately. I need it. Yeah, it's it's cool. And also, he's in like a big diving suit. Great, Tom right? Zane I remember is. that. I remember. Well, that yeah. he was in that in the in Alan Wake one, wasn't he? Didn't he show mm-hmm. up? Yeah, in he's that in Alan Wake one. Yeah, that's yep. a great visual. I don't think mm-hmm. I'm not really a remedy guy. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am, yeah, I you're think, employed at a different company. <laughs> yeah. I work for possibility space, a different company than remedy. Um, but I, I, there's like a real, I love the, I love the, the, the interior filling of those games, but I hate the jelly donut exterior. You know what I mean? I, mm. I don't know the juices are always worth the squeeze, but I love the juice. I like every part of the juice. I like the juice. <laughs> I like the rind. Well, the thing that makes me excited about it is like the pulp. It's like a survival horror, horror, a survival horror game, not just like a shooter, right? Some of it is. Okay, great. Some of it's <laughs> a big music video. <laughs> oh, but that's fine. That's what I mean. I just control got to me at a certain point where I was like, yeah. I am not here for flying around and shooting people. It's not yeah. why I came to this. Not this is not what drew me to this experience. <laughs> if um, I wanted to fly around and shoot people, I'd figure out how to do it in real life. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'd find mm-hmm. those skills inside of myself, but I don't want that. So no one needs Austin's to work. kind of Rocketeer-esque life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I love the Rocketeer as a you kid. You know, this this is not, I don't mean this is an insult in any way, Austin. Yeah. There is no one more oppositional to the Rocketeer way of life than you. <laughs> that's not true. We both hate Nazis. Uh-huh. Uh, that's true. Nazi I, Austin I, Walker is more oppositional. And there is a Nazi Austin Walker out there oh no oh, oh my god not I me. thought you're gonna be like in the rocketeer and i was like i don't yeah. remember this i bet there is i bet there's some little shitty smarmy i'm just saying i don't think you're the i'm putting the jetpack on kind of person i don't think you want the jetpack i would to fight a nazi if there was a nazi on top of my building who was hurting people and the elevators were down and they were like only <laughs> this this rocket pack can only fit you it's your size. It would send anybody else too high up. You have to do it. I this would, do would it. happen in a remedy game. This would yeah, happen yeah. in a remedy <laughs> game. This, this is actually. I just feel like you're the cue. I feel like you're. you're I'm like, the guy in the chair. I get it. Yeah. No, but you're I'm being saying like, here's the rocket. What's pack. the what's what's Alan Wake's uh, uh, pop? I want to say populist. So that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck? Populist Alan Wake. <laughs> sure. Let's Populous, go. Let's go into populist Alan Wake. A publicist. <laughs> what's his publicist's name? Barry. Barry. Barry would put on the the, the jetpack if he was the only guy who could put on the jetpack, and he'd complain about it the whole time because he's George <laughs> Costanza. And like George I don't Costanza. know how you stand this, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> carrying the Alan Wake standee the whole time. Yeah. He would do it. And so I'm going to try to follow after Barry 
uh, you know, sometimes you're the sidekick guy, but you still put on the jetpack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, is Jennifer Connelly there? Is she in the Rocketeer? Have I made this up? Uh, yeah, she is. Yeah. That oh, was yeah. my first exposure to Jennifer Connelly, which I think, you know, is one of those things where you're like, oh, well, my, that's my life made up for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's the next 30 years of my that's, life. Yeah. I'm good. Uh-huh. Uh, Jennifer Connelly is great. Yeah. And all kinds of stuff. Um, well, you want to talk about this uh, thing? Oh, anyway, Alan Wake's great. Alan Wake is good. <laughs> it is a survival horror thing. Sean Astin's in it. That's fun. Oh, that's yeah. fun. I like when the Remedy players show up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I've uh, tried to cajole Michael into a Remedy podcast. Oh, that'd be fun. Mm-hmm. Like well, our, oh, uh, you're putting like, that pressure on him here live? <laughs> yeah, I am. Like a too much future. Right, mm-hmm. but, rem- but the Remedy due, due to work busyness for both of us, I don't know if we're going to oh, be able to do it, but mm-hmm. that is my desire. In my, in my heart of hearts, that is the program I would like to make. Uh, but we'll see if we can get there. Also, Danny and I have to play Baldur's Gate 3 mm-hmm. for the next nine months of my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, at this point, you'd want to wait until there's any Alan Wake 2 DLC. And then maybe Control 2 happens, right? We got all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know, we got like, what is it? Death Rally? That yes. car beat em up game uh-huh, they the made? first game. Oh, this yeah. Is, we got to oh, do wow. that first. Is that part That's of the verse? One. Is that is that in there? I don't know. Hmm. I haven't finished Alan Wake 2 yet. Can you imagine? <laughs> I could. It turns into like Again, a twisted metal to game. To go for back the to back your, <laughs> your thing of like, um, uh, it, the thing I, the, the, that big fight sequence that we were just pretending was a video game sequence could happen. Yep. So could Death Rally or whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Easy. I could imagine that. And they own it. They put it back out on, on, they mm-hmm. publish, they republished it on mobile in the early 2010s. Yeah, it's in there for sure. You're going to find an arcade cabinet that's Death Rally, and then you're going to play it and have some sort of <clears throat> breakthrough about the case. Mm-hmm. Alex Casey appears in, in, in like one of those, uh, you know, the, the Remedy style, uh, like uh, superimpositions that happen. He's like, I was in the car. I could feel it burning. <laughs> Flipping, throwing my body from place to place. I felt the gun against my ribs. <sighs> I want to play Max Payne. Anyway, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about this book. Please. Mm-hmm. What happened? You want me to tell you what happened? I would sure. love to know. <clears throat> this is a summary. I thought of, you were getting uh, your Alex Casey voice back up, and I was like, oh, boy. Severian talks like this the whole time. <laughs> he, he draws in smoke and breathes out fire. Ragnarok. Um, this is a summary of uh, what happened in the reading for today through chapters 10 through 22 of the Citadel of the Autark. That's about uh, the middle third, I would say, of the book. Um, notably, if you haven't seen the schedule for this uh, book that we're doing here um, for this part, we're actually kind of sp- splitting the back third into two episodes. That's because lots of things happen at the end of the book of the new sun. So we're going a little bit slower on this one. So this is the middle third. The next two episodes are going to have some, uh, there'll be a little bit shorter readings, but, uh, Severian talks to a Pellerine who saw his fight with Agilus. She calls it the most, she calls it the most exciting fight she's ever seen. They have a conversation and she reveals that she can see Thecla while they talk. She tells him that materialism is wrong, that spirit and dream is all that is real. They talk about what it means to be human, and if Asians are human, and whether or not Jolinta and Jonas were human. They pray at an altar. Severian asks if it is time to judge the stories, and Foyla says that Loyal is going to tell a story with her translating. 
He tells a story about a farmer. Severian tells us that he loves stories. Later, he speaks to a slave named Winnock. He tells Severian about the history of slavery and also says that he was whipped 30 years previous by a man named Journeyman Palamon. Palamon had told him to live within an order, and Winnock sold himself into slavery to the Pelerines. He wonders if he has been tormented by Palamon all that time. Then Foyla tells a story. I have no idea what that story is about. Later, Severian hides the claw in the Pelerine's religious altar, leaving it for good. A Pelerine asks him to do her a favor, leave the hospital and convince a holy anchorite to leave his hermitage and come to the hospital. His name is Master Ash, and he tells Severian that he will not come to the Lazarette. It turns out he's a far future science religion man whose home stretches across many aeons. He and Severian have a very frustrating conversation about time. Severian kidnaps him to take him back to the Pelerines, but the probability of his existence collapses to zero and he disappears. When Severian returns to the Lazarette, it has been attacked. Of all the named characters so far, only Foyla remains alive. Severian promises to remember the stories that all of the people told. Afterward, while wandering, Severian is recruited by a guy on a destrier who gives him a ride. Severian then tells us about how much it hurts to get your balls smashed while riding a destrier. Then he goes through an initiation ritual and is inducted into a troop. Later, that troop is pinned down by Asians after they have captured a carriage full of man-beasts from earlier in the books. The man-beasts, Asians, and the soldiers unite briefly to make their way back to the Autarch's army. Flying women dual-wielding pistols save them in the end. Then Severian fights in a really big battle. And that's all we read for today. Truly, the battle rages. <laughs> it does. He gets knocked out. He's unconscious yeah. at the end of what we read for today. I put it on that cliffhanger for a reason. That's why you're the best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Um, a lot of little. I, I think you can feel. We've we've talked about before, right? That initially this quadrilogy was meant to be a trilogy, and then uh, the last book was so long that Wolf split it in half, and then added some filler in the middle to kind of make the two books even. The final two books, even, and uh, we're we are kind of getting the other half of that today. I think, which is like just some stuff that happens to Severian <laughs> um, that is interesting, but perhaps doesn't you know kind of kick the ball uh, any further uh, until we get to the battle part, of course. But uh, yeah, what, what do we want to talk about? What do we want to address here? Great question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can talk about stories. Right. Well, like, that's the divide here, right? Like this, this is continues for a little bit of our reading today to be a book about stories, you know, uh, in the, in the broad genre space of that sort of like, there is a frame story in which other stories are told. And then it becomes a war story, which is a different type of genre space, uh, which I don't know gives, does Gene any favors. Uh, I think like all of Gene's most, um, all the things I, I don't like about Gene are here in the war story and like less and less of the stuff I do like is there um, as the actual battle kicks off, especially, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's real good spot for like, and then there was a guy and the, let me tell you, let me give you the most orientalist description of a guy I could possibly give you. Uh, mm-hmm. Not even a, truly the most orientalist description of a woman I could possibly give you uh, specifically, mm-hmm. but like, you know, it's 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 monster manual gene is here and like it's not fun monster. It's like, what if a dwarf rode a giant? And that's not as fun 
or good as the nodules, for instance. Um, well, I mean, this is this is not just Monster Manual Gene. It's uh, like bad Dungeon Master. Gene. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the ways that the combat and stuff are actually talked about are, are really interesting. Like, that's the part of the war genre stuff he does all right with. Um, but but yeah, we'll talk about those specifically. When yeah, we when there. he's talking about fighting war, I think it's interesting. When he's talking about who is in a war, it <laughs> yes, is not. It's not. Which is bad dungeon master. Also, it's like let me tell you about all these miniatures I've put down on the table. Right, I've rolled the dice, and I know what percentage of them are women, and how many have children, and what we would have to do to. Uh, steal the young and sell them and I, I have the whole economy worked out on the slavery uh, angle don't worry about that uh, people should really listen to that bonus zone if you haven't you, you're missing out but you want to know how much uh, kidnapping of monsters and putting them into slavery there is listen to the bonus there's zone. more than zero there's more than more. zero percent of the words of the, uh, the ADD monster yeah. manual are dedicated to monster slavery also let me mm-hmm. give you this pitch if you want to know what the coolest letter is in the dungeon, <laughs> in the in the monster manual, you got to go listen to the episode. We really, that episode's long. It's like over three hours long. It's so mm-hmm. good, though. And we really messed up. We we made an error. And the error was we didn't rank the letters at the end. <laughs> oh, we fuck. You're right. We didn't rank. But I think we all know the number one. Which yeah. number, oh, it's it's easy. There's yeah. no question yeah. what the number one is. But like, what's number seven? Yeah, I, have no I don't idea. know. We should we we got to go back. <laughs> we did, yeah, we got to record a bumper for that episode <laughs> uh, so we can rank the letters of the alphabet. <laughs> Z is like, ironically enough, at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just zombie. It's just zombie. Yeah, there's a little taster for you. Yep. Um, um, so yeah, we're yeah, jump talk, in. Let's talk about these stories. Let's do yeah. that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. get those out of the way, and then we can talk about pelerines, and then we can talk about Wenok, and yeah. then we'll talk about the the battle stuff. I think that's an easy way to make our way through it. Um, we stopped the last time, and I did this this on purpose. We stopped before we got to loyal to the group of seventeens story. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because it's cool. It's so good. I'm actually, uh, I, you know, maybe we got more Asian stuff coming up that's going to make me feel bad about this thought I'm about to have. It's clear that, like, yes, Gene thinks that communists are all, you know, attending to like correct think and right thought and right speak and all that shit. But also, I think he thinks that might be true about everybody. Yep. And also, I think he might think it kind of rules. <laughs> um, I don't, like, not, it does rule. And because later thing. in this thing, yes. when Severian starts talking to the yes. Asians and using their yes. own language, that's fucking well, cool. And it's so good. It, he's, done a, he's done a trick, right? Which is that like, oh, now I'm looking for these phrases. I'm looking for the way in which, because I, mean, I think it's in here maybe, that Severian notes that like, oh, to some degree, many of, much of what we say is is tied to, I think there, it might be when talking to one of the pelerines that maybe it's there, where he's like, <clears throat> you know, um, sure, uh, it might seem at first that this person has has more freedom than the Asians do in language, but could you not predict the end of most of her sentences, basically? Yeah, that's the end of uh, of the conversation with, uh, or, or the end of the story when he's like, oh, yeah. foilish right. translations are just as, you know, kind of programmatic and yeah, 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 yeah programmatic yeah, yeah. and wrote yeah. as uh, uh, loyals. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, I do wonder, I, I, I thought about that and thought about, you know, because the whole book, 
as we are is yes. presented to us, the whole book is written after the fact, you know, yeah. like after yeah. everything is over is when Severian sits down to write this. I do wonder if this, if engaging with the Asians is the thing that makes Severian write very early that our symbols make us. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's interesting. That's fun. Because because yeah. where would he, where has he learned that? You know what I mean? He's yeah. gotten lots of pieces, but this is so close to that being kind of rewritten that I do wonder if this is like where he actually learns that lesson. Cameron, it's funny that this is the thing that wants you, that that urges you, that gives you the impulse to go back and say Gene had this when he wrote those words. In <laughs> the oh, I don't know book. if I think that, I don't know if that's the case. I like, I think what it is is like a retcon essentially. Right. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yes. Okay. That, I that, yeah, that makes sense. That is yeah. a retcon. Makes sense. Because there's so much here already that that we are there's so much here that we're getting in um, Citadel that is specifically like and this is where the thing that he said way earlier in these books right. came from. It's MGS you four know? syndrome, right? Yeah. It's like yes. well, it's yes. like, okay. it's yes. like Ava shows up and she's like, "Oh, I went to the Sanguinary Fields <laughs> once. I saw this specific battle, <laughs> right? Like, and yeah. then Winock himself, right? The, there's a I said in the notes that this is almost Dickensian the way that yes. uh, things here at the end are all pointing way back to the beginning and like plugging into events we've already been uh, like we've already seen or things that have been hinted at." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what makes me think that the other thing, right, is like that so much of this points to the beginning because it's all kind of looping back around, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the 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 Valeria shore is coming up a lot. The atrium of yes. time shore does keep coming up. Mm-hmm. Remember hey, that? Uh, who everybody? was it that, that declared to they were going to master time? Who was <laughs> yeah, that? I, who mm-hmm. could yeah. say? But like every say? time but that yeah. Severian, there's a bit in here later where someone says the Altarks name and Severian like scrambles to remember one of the tags you put on the end of that to be like whose subjects are the da 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 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and it's like every time that happens now or anytime I think about Jonas's um uh little aphorisms or, or little little sayings, it's like, oh right, like language. This is just mm-hmm. language. Language mm-hmm. is those who fight for the populace fight with a thousand hearts. Those who fight against them fight with none, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just much of language. And I think the book is aware of that. And so Again, we might they might turn into uh, you know absolute monsters in three pages. I don't know, uh, but right now I'm actually like I think Gene is kind of uh, I think both Gene and Severian are kind of confronting the fact that these people have been you know vilified in a in a way even mm-hmm. if they're the first blush they are less than human stuff mm-hmm. still kind of is, is rough. Yeah, uh, I yeah I think that you know like Gene is cognizant of ideology right Right. and i think especially in the reading for this stuff he is very much saying in a flat way people are put into war yes by by people who don't fight those wars right and that is 100 they are ultimately human yeah because like the these the the characters would not be saying so often that asians are not human if we weren't meant to think about the question of what is a human and that gets presented to us too right so like Mm -hmm. Now, do I think it like all cashes out in like stuff that is good or like embracing of universal humanity? No, right? Like I think that I think Gene is too attached to a certain set of tropes, and I think the anti-communism like really bleeds through, right? Like at the end of the day, I think he there is a authorial presentation that the Asians are the wrong way to be, right? That the ideology that they're in mm-hmm. is the wrong ideology uh-huh. to have, and yet I think he's still very aware and putting it in front of us that they are 
beneath ideology in the same way that everyone is. But Mike, Michael, right. sorry, you were yeah. about to say yeah. something. Oh, I so I have, uh, well, I could talk for the next 45 minutes straight about all of this. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and let's just Here's do that. It. Yeah, no. Uh, so what you were saying about the Asians, I think that's true, right? I think one of the things to make sense of what's going on with the Asians uh, is to put it in dialogue uh, with like Orwell in Newspeak, right? Right, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, sure. And uh, the kind of conservative critique of uh, left movements, but of, uh, you know, sort of communist movements, I think specifically, or really in this day and age, just like anything leftish, right? Um, uh, is the argument that uh, these attempts to uh, change language, right, are on the one hand attempts to control thought, Right. That's all over uh, what's going on in 1984 with Newspeak. Um, And we get a a kind of undermining of that here in uh, Citadel, which I'll have more to say about in a a moment. Um, But just like the form of the critique is that uh, whatever the Asians are doing or like whatever is going on in in Asian society, uh, their ideology is out of step with the world in some way. Right. Like, Mm. I think that's I think that's kind of the lever of critique there. Right. It's what, uh, uh, you know, what what we used to call pure ideology. Like there is a way that uh, communists would like the world to be. And this means that they try to force their opinions on reality, which always pushes back. Um, There's a form of this in the way that Severian kind of uh, makes his peace with the humanity of the Asians, which I'll get to by talking about the other huge thing uh, that is, in my opinion, clearly an influence here. Uh, which is the work of Mikhail Bakhtin, uh, the Russian literary theorist from the early 20th century, um, a dissident Soviet uh, whose work was suppressed, um, but then was recovered in the 60s and had a huge uptake, uh, not only in uh, the Soviet Union, um, but especially in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to intervene really quickly to, to yeah. say that, like, you might that people hear the word suppressed and they might think, like, oh, like. <laughs> under read or uh, discouraged no l- literally doctrinally right. suppressed yeah, yeah, yeah. by yes. the soviets prevented from being read right like uh so the the thing i'm going to talk about is bakhtin's what was it what was kind of basically his phd dissertation right uh, uh which is enters into english translated as rabelais in his world uh there was a big to do when Bakhtin submitted this about whether or not he would uh, be granted the the degree because it was so clearly um, a dig at, uh, well, this is where it's funny. It's like, so clearly I say, and it is very clearly a dig at Stalinist principles. And at the same time, like one of the clever things about Bakhtin, and I think what makes <laughs> him really take off in the United States, is the way in which he has fashioned an argument that is clearly about Stalinism, but never, ever mentions Stalinism. Right. Uh, so... <clears throat> uh, just to give a little bit more context then of like why Bakhtin like takes off and why he's important. Uh, some of his ideas uh, that become very influential uh, is his theorization of the novel uh, prior, like not, not, it's not like Bakhtin changes it overnight. Obviously he gets uh, his work is like suppressed uh, for, for 30 years. Um, uh, but uh, there's a history in, in like literary studies in literary history. There has always been the problem of the novel as a genre Um, because prior to the novel, we had forms like, you know, epic poetry, lyric poetry, tragedy, comedy, uh, which are all very fixed. Uh, Even something that is like a hybrid that doesn't get as much respect, like a tragic comedy, uh, is at least mixing elements of like two known genres in some clear way. The novel 
is often uh, called like uh, a genre without a form, right? That it is formless. It has uh, no regularity to it. You pick up a novel and like all sorts of incidents can happen in it. Uh, It can mix the comic and the tragic, the maudlin and like sort of the, the, the pathetic. Um, One of the things that Rabelais says about the novel, and he does this through uh, a reading of Dostoevsky uh, Mm -hmm. is he says the novel, it should be better understood as a multiplicity of genres that novels uh, are kind of uh, containers or machines that uh, can affix other generic types to them and reroute them to various ends. Uh, related to this, then, is a process that Bakhtin calls dialogism, uh, which is that uh, the, the idea that um, every element in a novel is in dialogue with every other element. So we might be tempted when we're looking at a novel to read for a, a kind of like central unifying thread or author- authorial point or voice. Uh, but one of the things that Bakhtin points out in reading through Dostoevsky is like, look how many voices are actually here. Which one of these is Dostoevsky's, right? Because there's a narrative voice and the narrator is not necessarily Dostoevsky himself. Uh, but then there are, uh, you know, like uh, upper class characters who speak in a certain way. And then there are lower class characters, you know, criminals and vagabonds and whatnot who speak in another way. And there are scholars and there are like representatives of the state. And all of these people have specific ways of speaking in the novel. And the novel has specific ways of like making making them speak, which means that, uh, you know, sort of one of the uh, things that Bakhtin works out here is that uh, in doing something like realism, Dostoevsky is taking like actual speech patterns that people have in the world and stylizing them and like condensing them down and like threading them together to make the world of the novel, uh, which is not a unified discourse, uh, but a kind of like meta discourse composed of uh, other discourses, right? Uh, A thing that he ends up calling uh, heteroglossia right? Many, many tongues. So uh, that's important to keep in mind. I think if you're listening to this show, you're probably hearing already why this might be relevant for Book of the New (laughs) Sun. Uh, The other thing then that uh, Bakhtin does, uh, that's really important for Bakhtin, and this comes out of the book that I already mentioned, Rabelais and His World. This is a book about the uh, French uh, novelist, uh, sort of humanist, a uh, comedian, sort of, uh, Francois Rabelais, uh, who wrote in the Middle Ages uh, these extremely lewd and ribald uh, comic novels that are like plotless. They're about giants, right? Uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel and like all of the bizarre picaresque style adventures they have where they're like bebopping around Europe and uh, meeting people who are uh, scholars or uh, royalty or like weird magicians and they're like fighting in wars and uh, getting drunk and uh, finding sex workers and just just all this stuff, right? Eating lots and lots of food. Uh, and Bakhtin in Rabelais and His World uh, basically forms this thesis that uh, Rabelais is doing something, like he, he names the aesthetic that Rabelais is developing that he calls, uh, Bakhtin calls grotesque realism. Uh, which is this idea that uh, b- these novels were not made for a high, uh, like, inner. Uh, a high intellectual audience, right? It was not made for the royalty. Uh, they were built out of folk tales, out of like sort of common uh, jokes that you would hear in the village square or whatever. Uh, and it is above all for Bakhtin because despite being a dissident Soviet, he is very much a, a Marxist and has, um, you know, certain like ways of interpreting Marxism and like Marxist affiliations. Uh, he is saying that uh, in, 
in writing popular novels, Rabelais is writing uh, to like the people, right? Quote unquote. And the people are into grotesque realism, which is to say people like fart jokes. They like jokes where people get peed on and where people get dragged by their horses and all their flesh gets ripped off and then they're just like <laughs> skeletons, right? They like jokes about sex and uh, they like uh, straightforward representations of sex that are titillating. Uh, they like stories about drinking. Uh, the, the Wait a minute, I like all that stuff. <laughs> right, the people. Right. So Bakhtin- I love it when people get dragged so that their flesh flies off their bones. <laughs> right. You're always saying this. Uh-huh. I'm always, I know, y'all are always editing it out. Mm-hmm. I know that you've given the assistant editor a a, a message. Jordo got a got a message. Actually, chief editor uh, uh-huh. got a message yeah, from yeah. y'all that says, "Get all the skeletonization talk out of here <laughs> and get the foley out too. It's gross." <laughs> yeah, it's all really my, well, it's, all my beloved splorches <laughs> don't get to go in. Not a good workflow for us to like send to foley and then send to Jordo <laughs> to edit everything down. Uh. So uh, uh, Bakhtin says that grotesque realism uh, is a sign of – so the way that he formulates this, right, is that grotesque realism uh, is in opposition to a a competing aesthetic sensibility that is put forth by the medieval church, um, which is all about uh, kind of the closed and perfected body, right? Uh, uh, Truly a a sort of idealism of form – uh, where the body doesn't seep, it doesn't, uh, you know, the, it's sort of like the respectable body, right? The, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the body of the person in power uh, is uh, closed off. It's not subject to, like, violation, right? Uh, there, there's, like, a command and air of respect around everything, like sort of the maintenance of these things. So uh, Bakhtin has this thing going on where uh, there's a always like a centralizing power or sort of like a centralized power that wants to exert power by saying or by being prescriptive about like what bodies look like. And this is often about closing bodies off or like sanding them smooth. The, the, one of the things that Bakhtin often compares it to is like a Greek statue, right? Think of like the Greek statue without, as we know, these these were painted now, but like as they were uh thought of as being like no paint at all, like very perfect in terms of proportion right. and form and so on. Oh, like the statues out front of the Citadel of the Altark. Yeah. <laughs> Living ones who walk around with perfect form. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, opposed to that, right, uh, Bakhtin is saying that people are into grotesque realism, which is about the open body, the the uh, the body that excretes, that wastes, that consumes, but also the body that procreates, uh, the body that is reborn. Um and uh, this is coming at a time when, uh, you know, the, the Soviet Union is pushing this thing called socialist realism, which says that the people must always be presented as uh, beautiful and sunny. And uh, you know, basically, uh, this is this is where uh, the whole oppression thing comes in, or rather the suppression of these ideas, because Bakhtin is playing this game uh, where he is saying that. Or he is using like this kind of historical uh, situation to develop a theory that is also a response to the the clear like mandates of scholarship in his own time period. Um, so this is why his work is controversial and gets uh, suppressed uh, because his the the basic point that it boils down to, and you can see how this. Uh, works with the heteroglossia idea, right? That mm-hmm. uh, uh, text is always kind of like a, a, a collection of tags or like speech patterns that are borrowed from the, the larger culture. Uh, 
because a story is or like any sort of like communication is always going to be multi-voiced, uh, he uses his ability to talk about one thing to talk about another thing. Uh, and I just want to read a little bit of what Severian says uh, here uh, at the end when he's talking about uh, the Asian's story, which uh, we didn't even talk about really what goes on in that. Do we want to no. do you want to clarify yeah, we, that we, before I we should? Yes. Yeah. Which which to, for the listener, nothing we've said already, I think, relies on having heard that read that particular story uh, because we were kind of talking more broadly about the Asians. But at this point, yes, we should give a quick summary of what it is. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. And then I'll go to the uh, other texts to uh, pull some other things into alignment here. Totally. So this- also, don't let me get out of here without rewinding us to Dostoevsky. Please. Okay. All um, right. Uh, the short version of this story is the loyal loyal to the group of 17 is going to, you know, uses the phrases that that are, uh, you know, uh, allowed to be used. And then Foyla interprets them one sentence at a time. Right. So it starts with in times past, loyalty to the cause of the populace was to be found everywhere. The will of the group of 17 was the will of everyone. It kind of, uh, you know, uh, let's say like a, a very romantic or or Rousseauian, you know, state of nature, cooperation, not competition or conflict. And Foyla goes once upon a time. Right. And so that continues throughout this entire thing. The, the, the loyalty gives a long phrase and Foyla interprets it. And the short version of this is there's a farm, there's a, like a farm co-op where a really good guy lives uh, and the other people on the farm cheat him uh, and uh, beat him up. Uh, and again and again, he goes to the Capitol to uh, say, hey, I need help. Uh, I'm being cheated. I'm being assaulted. The the people are cheating me out of my the, the work that I do on this farm. Um, they are taking more than their fair share and and hurting me when I complain about it. And nothing happens. And he goes back and he says, I complained. And then they beat him up and take his stuff again. And then he goes back to the Capitol. And then this repeats like four or five times until finally uh, they he returns for like the fifth time. And he's been, you know, left in rags. He doesn't have shoes left. You know, it's all and again. This is Foyle's interpretation. Um, uh, in the end, they uh, uh, they beat him. They mock him again. And he becomes a beggar. Uh, and then, sorry, that's the split of the story. Right? He does eventually come back and they mm-hmm. leave. They eventually, he eventually comes back and they leave and he runs the farm happily ever after. Literally, Foyla says, and lived happily ever after. Um, they run away because at this point, theoretically, they believe that surely the soldiers will get, are going to come and kill them this time. Uh, and so they better get out of here. So, you know, classic... Uh, you know, guy runs a farm, deals with cheaters, and uh, gets beat into submission until the bad guys leave. Story. <laughs> Classic guy calls the cops a lot. Story. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't do anything, and then uh-huh. eventually the bad guys run away. <laughs> the yeah, that's what I go, said. The cops are going <laughs> to show up eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they got it, right? Yeah. Like, like eighth time's the charm, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to me that the, these... Uh, other farmers uh, don't just kill this guy because, of course, even they know that no one is to receive more than 100 blows. Mm-hmm. No one's to receive more than 100 don't blows. Don't kill anybody, all right? You can beat the <laughs> crap out of someone. Behind our efforts, you find our efforts. Uh-huh. Behind our <laughs> efforts. Let me tell you, behind our efforts, you find our efforts goes. I I legitimately, while reading this, I thought, I should get this as a, as a tattoo. It's that good. Mm-hmm. Behind our it efforts, let there be good. found our efforts. Mm-hmm. Fuck, yeah. man. 
<laughs> the, the whole quote there is behind everything, some further thing is found, which of course returns us to Dorcas and Severian in book one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about ph- philosophy and talking about um, uh, religious symbols and stuff, right? Behind every uh, everything, some further thing is found forever. Thus the tree behind the bird, stone beneath soil, the sun beneath earth. Behind our efforts, let there be found our efforts. Whew. Yeah. Rise and grind out. Yeah. Behind our efforts, let there be found our efforts in. <laughs> good. good stuff. And yeah, so after all of this, Severian uh, talks about how much he loves stories. And then he says, mm-hmm. from this story, though it was the shortest and most simple two of all those I've recorded in this book, I feel that I learned several things of some importance. First of all, how much of our speech, which we think freshly minted in our own mouths, consists of set locutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Asians seemed to speak only in sentences he had learned by rote, though until he used each for the first time, we had never heard them. Foilus seemed to speak as women commonly do, and if I had been asked whether she employed such tags, I would have said that she did not. But how often one might have predicted the ends of her sentences from their beginnings. Mm -hmm. Second, I learned how difficult it is to eliminate the urge for expression. The people of Asia were reduced to speaking only with their master's voice, but they had made of it a new tongue, and I had no doubt after hearing the Asian that by it he could express whatever thought he wished. And third, I learned once again what a many-sided thing is the telling of any tale. None, surely, could be plainer than the Asians, yet what did it mean? Was it intended to praise the group of seventeen? The mere terror of their name had routed the evildoers. Was it intended to condemn them? They had heard the complaints of the just man, and yet had done nothing for him beyond giving him their verbal support. There had been no indication they would ever do more." But I had not learned those things I had most wished to learn as I listened to da, 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 right? What would have been the, uh, 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 he gets into like, why did why did she allow this, right? Um, but mm-hmm. just to compare some of the stuff that uh, Severian is saying here, um, I'm going to pop into Bakhtin now, but not Bakhtin himself. Uh, this is the, what does she call it? Is it a pre- prologue? Is she calling it the prologue? I think so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the prologue of uh, the uh, Rabelais and his world, that is put out. No, it's not the prologue. Oh my God. Michael Holquist. Why did you write a prologue? Uh, so Christina Pomorska, uh, who was like, always asking. Yes. Michael Holquist. Why did you write a prologue? <laughs> He's like the big Bakhtin guy or was in, in the eighties. Um, yeah. But there's also a forward here by uh, Christina Pomorska, who is, uh, or was, I think she's passed away, was um, uh, like a structural narratologist and like linguist. Uh, she was, I actually learned this in like double checking. She was not just like in in the uh, method and mode of Roman Jakobson, who was another like Russian literary formalist. Uh, she also married him at one point. So anyway, uh, in her foreword uh, to Rabelais and his world, here is uh, just kind of like a very good paragraph summary of like the things that people were talking about about uh, Bakhtin in this time. And this is so this book is published. It's rediscovered in the 60s, I think, translated into English for the first time in 68. And this is like an 84 uh, reprinting. Um, Another of Bakhtin's outstanding ideas connecting him with modern semiotics is his discovery that quoted speech permeates all our language activities in both practical and artistic communication. Bakhtin reveals the constant presence of this phenomenon in a vast number of examples from all areas of life, literature, ethics, politics, law, and inner speech. He points to the fact that we are actually dealing with someone else's words more often than our own. Either we remember and respond to someone else's words, in the case of ethics, or we represent them in 
in order to argue, disagree, or defend them in the case of law. Or finally, we carry on an inner dialogue responding to someone's words, including our own. In each case, someone else's speech makes it possible to generate our own and thus becomes an indispensable factor in the creative power of language. One other thing, then. Uh, I think, I, like, Cameron, you and I were talking about... Uh, like what what is the likelihood that Gene would have like encountered uh Bakhtin specifically or was like someone yeah. talking about Bakhtin and that did, did some digging on on that one. Yeah. It was uh, a little hard to pin down but uh some of the stuff that makes me think that well so first of all I think we what we what was it the what journal was it that had like a whole Bakhtin issue in like 86? Uh, science fiction studies. Yes. Ah, sure. Right. So science fiction studies is a, which is kind of one of the marquee journals of science fiction studies, like as a field. Um, throughout the, the mid 80s, like 85, 80, or like 85, 86, 87. 87 is an issue that is, just seems to be fully on Bakhtin, even though it didn't look like it was a special issue. But it's, it's like in the water with the science fiction community easily by the mid 80s and probably uh, much more in scattered form throughout the early 80s. So and Wolf was part of those communities and was going to conferences and engaging with these people. Um, the other speculation that I made that I that I can't defend but feels correct to me is the is Stanislaw Lim kind of becoming one of the major Russian uh, interlocutors with the, the the American, in particular, the Anglophone um, science fiction community, um, reading the work, engaging with it heavily, writing criticism, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it seems impossible to me that that Lim was not familiar with um, uh, Bakhtin. So mm -hmm. uh, the uh, anyway, you know, there's yeah. a cluster. I'm not a historian of this particular kind of thing, but I, I did do a little bit of digging last night, and it, it does seem very likely to me that if Wolf did not directly read Bakhtin, which I don't know one way or the other, certainly was around lots and lots of people who had. Yeah. So and, a little and, speculation. And I think uh, uh, Wolf, if he was being told about Bakhtin, would have been attracted to him uh, because one of the other things that marks Bakhtin as a bit of a dissident uh, is that he's a uh, like a Christian Marxist. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't talk, he doesn't, like he's not doing doctrine or theology very often in his work explicitly, uh, but he is associated with like uh, Christian Marxist groups that are being suppressed in the Soviet Union as well. And so I think, uh, you know, for <laughs> Wolf, who is now writing a very explicitly Christian uh, science fiction novel, uh, that would be something he would also be really interested in thinking about. Um, so totally, which is also, I think, part of why I, I connect back to the Dostoevsky here, who's also obviously very a, a deep Christian writer mm -hmm. um although though you know sometimes dips into other religious uh uh things too um dostoevsky is also someone who you you know i first encountered bakhtin in a in a course on existentialism uh, uh as someone reading dostoevsky uh, where we focused on bakhtin's um concept of like the unfinalizable self Mm -hmm. um, which, which for Bakhtin, in Dostoevsky, Bakhtin basically argues in Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky's characters always uh, are, are kind of framed the moment before choice. And it's the, the emphasis on, hey, the future is, is unfinalized. The future, you know, is not something that is set. Uh, and partly that is because of, you know, the way that for for uh, both, I think, for, for Dostoevsky and I think for Wolf, the world is more than material. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the moment that I thought of Dostoevsky here first was in the conversation with Ava, where she chides Severian for being a materialist. Um, and and here she she I mean first of all to be clear she does not mean a materialist in the lowercase m sense of I'm I like to have things all I like to have luxury goods um, <laughs> she means it in the philosophical sense of mm-hmm. uh, the the world is fundamentally uh, uh, made of material things it operates according to material function um, mm-hmm. it is it is scientific and rational or, or if not if if not rational in the thinking sense uh, it, it functions according to the way physics plays out, right? It is a physical It, it does not exceed the material. It does not there exceed is, the, there, there is nothing not ideal. There is not an ideal yes, beyond yes. the physical properties Correct. of the universe. And, and she is saying, hey, your materialism doesn't make materialism true. In the final summing up, quote, it is spirit and dream, thought and love, and act that matter, um, which is, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, Alyosha in, in um, Brothers Karamazov believes. This is, uh, a much more cynical, or not cynical, but a much a much more aggressive uh, argument from the underground man in Notes from Underground. Um, uh, Dostoevsky again and again pushes uh, a, a vision of the world that cannot be reduced to physicalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that that is is all throughout this section. Um, and is, uh, I think for me kind of core to, I mean, this goes back to what you were saying before a little bit, um, which is the, it seems like Gene and it seems like Severian think of the Asians or the Asians as, as a group that have been tied down by ideology, uh, an ideology of this world and that what the, the, they're missing, what the, you know, what is the third way <laughs> if it's not mm-hmm. the, the Northerner, populism uh, and and communism, and if it's not the uh, corrupt autarxy, uh, which is just like falling apart uh, all around you where you got to go dig up chairs, um, it's it's faith and it's spirit and it's, you know, it's free will. Uh, and truly, <laughs> the, there is stuff in this section of the book that so sharply brings into relief and here I'm talking about this as just a reader and not as someone who is trying to analyze it. But it brings, and in this I mean is is a positive or a compliment. How badly I wish I weren't a materialist, the, which is also how I feel about Dostoevsky. Right? Mm-hmm. I, All right, Karl Rove. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is something deeply beautiful about the way that that this book addresses the spirit in a way that often I don't find in the way people address the spirit, right? Uh, or the idea of the ideal, the idea that there is something beyond this stuff around us. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that I am, you know, in some ways in the final instance, uh, I am uh, just about as much of a determinist as you could get to. Um, uh, and yet when I read a book like this, it's like, oh, I wish I could give myself over to the thing Gene gave himself over to. Um, it would be so much lighter a life <laughs> if I did. Maybe not. Maybe it would be a heavier life because then people would have to account even more deeply for their cruelty. Uh, but but when I read the sections here on that, uh, it, it hits me in the way that Dostoevsky does, um, uh, which, which I think speaks to something real and something felt, even if I don't mm-hmm. see the world in that way. You know? Yeah, right in your mm-hmm. Catholic heart. Right, mm-hmm. truly, right? Because like this is what mm-hmm. I gave up when I left Catholicism, right? Yes. The clarity mm-hmm. of this is so appealing. Um, it is, it is 
such a relief to have this. It's a blanket. It was a blanket for me for so long. Uh, and so to have given that up is like deeply felt as I read this section, yeah, especially the, the, in a moment where, the, where the world is on fire. You know what I mean? Yeah, where, the, like, the double combo of the double combo of like this too shall pass and everything will be, yeah. you know, uh, redeemed. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Powerful combo. Yeah. Right? Dude. You know, like it, it's a real one too mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, universal practice. Um, and, uh, and, and is articulated here as like a balm against a nightmare, right? Right. The war has been going on for every year, you know, like in the fiction of the thing, right? It's been going on every year, every single summer since as far back as anyone can remember. This happens constantly. And I mean, here's the real gene power, right? Like we could, I think, be critical and unhappy with a gene who like, just presents this and like dusts his hands off and goes home, right? Um, and I think it's to his strength as a writer and why I think that these books kind of they're not C.S. Lewis, right? Mm-hmm. Whose whose um, uh, comfort in faith I find distressing and like ultimately robbing of any power of those books, right? Whether it's Narnia or the space stuff, I just I think C.S. Lewis is just bankrupt. I didn't even for know C.S. Lewis did space stuff. I'll, I got to be honest. Oh, with the you. space stuff, like it's I've not never engaged. It, it's yeah. not necessarily good, but it is bonkers. Yeah, it's huh. weird. I it's worth I mean, I don't know. Like at this point in your life, I don't know if you want to do it, but I wasn't I'm not mad that I, I don't have the time, you know. The, the, um, yeah, right. Like I had to the get thing on that, this podcast so I could read fiction again, you know? <laughs> I, I I don't think I got I don't I don't think I want to read too many more of these kinds of books. Yeah, that's fair. in the in the in the close present. Yeah. Um but uh but the thing I'm working my way to, right, is like that's a kind of comfort with that, with everything you just said of the kind of power and sereneness of that that um, if Gene ended there, I would find very disappointing. But he doesn't. Right. The mm-hmm. Lazaret is destroyed. Yeah, the Lazaret's yeah. destroyed, dude. Yeah, uh, and well, if you believe these things, you need to hold on to the comfort of them, even in the place where everyone who we've fallen in love with over these, you know, first third of this book is killed. Right. They're all dead. Well, right. related to this, if I may, I, I don't want to dominate yeah. conversation too no, much. Please, can please, I talk please. a little bit about yeah, yeah. some more destroyed tents? Yeah, oh, please. a thousand right? percent, please. Yes. Right. So uh, this is way back in book one when I brought up uh, the vision and then we followed into oh, the vision. Here's the, he's right? going with the baby baby theory again. Yes. I know uh-huh. he's going to sneak it in. The unified baby baby theory. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Severian is also the giant baby and you, reader, are the giant baby, too. Oh, Severian oh, no. is the giant baby. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. So way back in the first book. Yeah. Uh, when Dorcas and Severian see the strange uh, thing floating over Nessus. Uh, yeah. And then later on, we've got uh, uh, implications that it's the tent of the Pelerines, right? The cathedral that they let go and like burnt up. And I made a hard case for saying that uh, I do not think the thing that they saw is the tent of the Pelerines. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, how, how this has worked out, right, uh, is that. After that moment, we go to the Saltus Fair in uh, the second book, in Claw. That's when we get the first clue that it was the tent. Later mm-hmm. on, he meets up with Dorcas, uh, and she says it was the tent. And I pointed out there's some, like, weirdness there, too, that mm-hmm. she talks about it as if they've already had that conversation, but it's not a conversation we saw. That's like, the first time they've seen each other. Uh, and then here in this book, when Ava and Severian are talking— uh, she mentions that they burned the tent in Nessus yep. and Severian says very explicitly, I saw it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now, 
way back when I first read these books, obviously I like the reputation of them got to me first as everyone was like, oh, this is like, you know, Gene Wolfe, the puzzle master. There's all these like cool <laughs> things you're not going to notice or, you know, stuff to figure out. And this is one of the things that really stuck with me in my first reading was like that vision. And then what felt like the true and real weirdness of the way that it gets resolved. Like there's something about it. Maybe, uh, you know, people uh, don't agree with me on this, but it just the, the thing that Severian describes that he claims to have seen seems so at odds with the thing that follows it, with kind of the explanation that we get. So after I read these books for the first time, obviously, when I'm looking up, like, what's all that? What are all the secrets in Book of the New Sun? Like, what if, what have people figured out about this? It turns out what they figured out was, did you know that the thing that Severian and Dorcas see over Nessus is the tent of the Pelerines? Right. And I'm like, yes, they I did. The book told me that I was hoping multiple to, times <laughs> like I was hoping to figure out, like, how we got here. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Why is it that neither of those characters said, oh, my God, that's the tent of the Pelerines? Right. Uh, and then I noticed that there is like further kind of speculation uh, within like wolf fandom in general that is like, hey, there is there, there are people who recognize, hey, there, there is something weird going on here. Uh, you know, not just how Severian describes it, which, again, is like the, the, the language that he is using is being drawn out of uh, things Wolf, I'm pretty sure, has read. Right. These medieval reports of castles in the sky, which are connected to like modern UFO lore and whatnot. Um, and then there's another thing that we did not touch on back at the beginning of Lictor when Severian is sitting with Syriaca uh, and she is talking about her youth in the Pelerines. She says, I was nurtured by them. I was a postulant, we know. We traveled up and down the continent and I used to have wonderful botany lessons just looking at the trees and flowers as we passed. Sometimes when I think back on it, it feels as if we went from palms to pines in a week, though I know that can't be true. So some people seize on this as like evidence that there is something more going on with the Pellerines tent, ah, right? That this is, right. this is right. The, the two versions of the theory that I've seen is that it is a spaceship in some way, or right. it is um, uh, like some sort of hot air balloon, right? Uh, I still don't think this quite resolves because it's very clear that the Pellerines are walking around everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that is like, that's a thing that other multiple characters have said, Uh so this is all to say, uh, to go back to what uh, Severian and Dorcas are talking about right after they see the thing for the first time, we get, you know, the three modes of interpretation, yeah. Yeah. what the plowman sees, the practical thing, the soothsayer's meaning, because everything is in connection with everything else. And so everything we see can tell us something about uh, what has happened or what is going to happen. And this is what, uh, so the plowman sees, right? That's the tent. Like the plowman sees the tent and we see right. this in Saltus when uh, everyone's like, oh, did you hear about the Pellerines? They burn their tent again. Mm -hmm. uh, the soothsayer's meaning is what happens when we got to this point and we had multiple people like in our discord who are reading along who are like, oh, and I think it's this and I think it's this and I think it's going to mean this. Right. Mm -hmm. The kind of uh, drive to uh, put it into dialogue and make behind a everything. Some it. further thing is found. Exactly. Yeah. Then there is uh, the transubstantial meaning. This is a quote. Since all objects have their ultimate origin in the pan creator and all were set in motion by him, so all must express his will, which is the higher reality. Everything is a sign, uh, Severian goes on to say. So why is it then, right? This is the question for me. 
is why is it that Severian sees a burning tent, but mm-hmm. in the moment seems to see, describes what he sees as a castle in the sky. Uh, and this to me, this feels like Wolf uh, trying to do something um, with like interpretation and art. When you look at art, what do you see? And he's constructed this really interesting uh, thing, which by the bevy of interpretations we have, I think it's clear, right? Almost seems to scan like all of these, like, is it a just a, a tent? Is it a spaceship? Is it something more? These are almost smooth, right? They almost work. And then there's like one other detail that you can use to unpick any sort of closure. Uh, so it's, you know, uh, uh, this is an odd image. Uh, try to wrap your mind around it, right? It's like constructing a perfect little jewel and then having a flaw in the middle of it. <laughs> and the flaw turns out to be the point because the point here is how do you interpret the things that you see and what are the, you know, how do you give meaning to things and where does that meaning come from? Right. Well, like, well, and then, and then again, to me, this is, this is where Gene and I depart because for Gene, the, you can, in the material world, you will, it will eternally defer, right? But there is more than the material world for Gene and it will resolve only in one place, which is in spirit and, and, you know, God, Mm -hmm. right? Or, and eternity. And eternity, right? right. Like there is a final calculus. Which we, which most of us cannot close the distance to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are whether we believe whether we are we live as crass materialists, we live in a, in a world that imposes crass materiality on us. Um, gee whiz, I sure wish there was someone around who could close that distance for us. Right. Some sort uh, of conciliator, some sort of conciliator. I mean, yeah, and, and I again, this that. is this is the pity, I think, that he has towards dirty communists like me is that in, you know, like. I think he sees the beauty of behind our efforts, let there be found our efforts, but wishes for us behind our efforts, let there be found the eternal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that for him that it, it feels like that is what is coming out of this um, uh, text as being the, the, the way forward. Right. Well, I th- and, and, you know, to, to put that in the context of the book, right behind our efforts for the Asians, actually what is behind their efforts is a, falling, you know, kind of ragged civilization, right? right? You know, the there are more youth, there are more women, right? We yeah. get that that thing here where they are desperate. And there's Erebus and Abaya, right? Like mm-hmm. objectively interlopers from another world who are suborning um order. Yeah. And behind, you know, this is the book of the new sun, behind the, the autarchy is some other potential force of salvation, right? I mean, there's a very literal kind of metaphysics that is, that is being pursued, I think, with some clarity even at this point in this book. So, like, mm-hmm. it, 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 that's just to, like, reiterate what you're saying. It actually cashes out in plot-based stuff. Yeah, it's not just right. an abstraction. That's it's literally this is what, what the plot I mean. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is yeah. not... It does not feel open-ended at this point. Like, this feels, yeah. like, pretty pretty determined to get there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Michael, for bringing us to these places. Mm-hmm. These are all yeah. these are all things I would not have gotten to as a reader. So. Uh, I mean, what do you make of I know, I know this is like backtrading a little bit, but what do you make of like the actual literal plotty, plotty plot stuff of loyal story and like what happens here? Because the writing of this is fascinating to me of creating it's all dependent on Foyla's interpretation here, mm-hmm. too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. You need the translate, big quotation marks around need the translation, right? But like that is the thing that makes it legible initially, but then Severian doesn't need the translation anymore, right? He like yeah, learns he to speak the Asian's language in some way, right? Yeah. Um, 
I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Is there something to do with that? Do people have more thoughts about that. Um, I why think does why does he give a why does he tell a story? Oh, I think he tells a story because he one. Well, I mean, I think he tells a story because Gene thinks we as people love to tell stories because it's the mm-hmm. only human, the only truly human thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, which, which again, grounds loyal as a human, right? Fundamentally, yep. loyal is just like us. We all love to tell stories. We all love to express ourselves. This is part of who, how we've been made. Um, uh, this is, this is, and I mean that in the capital M sense, not the lowercase ideological made. Again, handed down from by God. You know, we we got made into people who like to tell stories. Um, uh, and I think that that is, that is part of it. I think the other part is, uh, the cute girl in the, in the hospital says we're doing a storytelling contest. (laughs) And I think, I think, you know, there's that great little bit early on where, where Foyle is like, what am I not supposed to? I think he's kind of cute. I think loyal, loyal (laughs) to the group of 17 is, is, is why he's not allowed to flirt with me. Come on. (laughs) So he does. What are you passing yeah. the time? You know, you're 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 you know, uh, uh, laid up in the hospital after the war. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it also uh, it shows up here because it's like the mizan and bem of the entire book of the new sun can narrow down to this little point, right? Where uh, it is. You mentioned that we're we've get we got these. Uh, we've got the story itself, and then we've got the translation slash interpretation mm-hmm. of a story. For every translation is also an act of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's querying precisely these questions of, um, uh, like, uh, uh, multi-voiced uh, story and uh, translation and trust that are also prompted by, like, Severian as narrator and GW as translator of the manuscript Book right. of the New Sun, right, right. right. Behind everything, some other, some further thing is found. Uh, I'm, it's it's in my fucking brain, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> is this going to show up in, uh, in Friends at the Table now? It won't, because I don't do direct stuff like that. Generally That's speaking, right. uh, I do my best to stay a little bit removed. But you know, mm-hmm. Derry Da is in is in yeah. Friends at the Table, and like, there's a little post structuralism in this. You know, it it, it resolves mm-hmm. in something else. Uh, but well, I'm just thinking about like, uh, uh, you know, like the person who speaks in in prepackaged catchphrases. I don't no, think it's too done much that, work because right? I don't prep like yeah. that. You know, that's, that's, that's hard. True. That's true. It's really hard to be like. Well, it can only be five things, right? That's the thing is you could do that. <laughs> you could have someone who has like five emotion responses, mm-hmm. and like I could mm-hmm. I could learn those. <laughs> this those. is Commander Shepard. Right, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yes, you can do that. That's kind of fun. I don't know. This this is kind of reality. That could that could find its way in there. I'll think. Yeah. I'll think it over. Mm-hmm. A year from now, people will hear. You know. Well, what about um, uh, what about Foyla's story? I like Foyla's story. Classic marriage story. Yeah. Classic classic marriage challenge. Mm-hmm. What's it about? Uh, it's about how girls just want to have fun, Cameron. Girls just want to fucking hang. You know. <laughs> What, you don't want to go duel some assholes and then get on a boat and, you know, hang out with your boy? I Girls guess. just want to have fun. What's about all these knights in brown and the it's rings cool. around there? I don't know if yeah. it is cool. I do like what? when the guy gets killed by his own horse. I think that's You're cool. the fantasy guy. <laughs> this is not my fantasy. Thing. This is my yeah. fantasy. This is exact. Yes, exactly. I don't think I don't think that our fantasy desires overlap mm-hmm. very much. I want uh, an elf. I want a sword. I there's want a, a sparrow uh, knight in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm good. 
Fuck That's off. some red wall shit. I'm not involved. <laughs> I was thinking it was Radagast, but whatever. Yeah, it does have Radagast. Yeah, uh-huh. Sure. Radagast mm-hmm. yeah, vibes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he does have yeah. that kind of thing. So uh Foyla's story, if you're not reading along, is about a uh young woman who is well socially positioned, uh, but she's I think an only child, and her uh father is like a I, this is not the term used, but he's like a rancher on the pampas, right? Yeah. Uh, there's this great, which he talks about life, uh, uh, Foyla. It's, you know, as everyone who tells these stories, they're they're telling stories from the places they're from. So this yeah. is where Foyla is from. Uh, and she mentions, what is that real, the great way that she puts it? That like basically the My pampas land. have. Oh. oh, sorry. I was going to say the thing that I highlighted when it first came up. And then the second time it came up, I fucking burst into tears, which I didn't think that would be the type of book this was. I've, had, <laughs> I've read this book with such remove that when I saw the phrase, my land is the land of the far horizons of the wide sky, I just died inside. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you going to say? Because I think you were going to say, oh, oh, oh. were you talking about the fire? Yes, and so yeah. like when the seasonal fires come through, there's this really wonderful, mysterious, bizarre line about how the um. Uh, I'll like read the, this whole little section. Yeah, read it. Read it. This one paragraph. Each of the men told a story of his own country. I will do the same. My land is the land of the far horizons, of the wide sky. It is a land of grass and wind and galloping hooves. In summer, the wind can be as hot as the breath of an oven, and when the pompous takes fire, the line of smoke stretches a hundred leagues, and the lions ride our cattle to escape it, looking like devils the men of my country are as brave as bulls and the women are as fierce as hawks yeah Bang. like that line uh that line about the lions riding the cattle which in this world is smoke. so uh-huh loaded yeah. right uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh so yeah there's a a lady who's young woman who's like the daughter of a well-off rancher essentially uh, it, the time has come for her to marry so uh, the father has a whole bunch of suitors come to the home And she dresses as a man and uh, moves among them during their their, you know, like first couple days or the week or whatever. And she, uh, in the guise of a man, listens to them, uh, figures out like, oh, this guy is just like here for the money. This is the guy who is like really rude when he thinks no one is looking or he's like willing to like steal stuff or whatever. Uh, And she reports all this to her father, who then uh, makes these guys leave. Uh, It also should be noted that I, I thought this was implicit, but maybe I should make it clear is that she's not just like the daughter of this guy but she's like you know out riding her own horses like yeah, across yeah. the sun dappled plains and everything she's kind of a free spirit uh so eventually there are just three suitors left uh and they are invited to see her she and like she does not reveal that she was uh, hidden among them but they they go in and they meet her and she says okay i've like set up a contest here uh whoever can find the ring that should be used to marry me uh you'll like we're actually no that's she doesn't give the the condition then yeah. i think right this is what so- she says there are some rings in here mm-hmm. uh and there's there's you know i have one on my finger on my tiny finger there's a chest of jewels and there's some rings in there but there's another ring in here somewhere. Who can find it? Mm-hmm. She doesn't. There's no promise at that point. She just says, right. "Can one of you find it? Can one of you discover it and bring it to me?" Right. And this is what's wonderful is that because this is so fairy tale, you can you can start to anticipate like, okay, like someone's going to find this, and that's going to be the guy who's going to marry her, right? Yeah. 
So uh, they look all around and eventually the youngest suitor, he discovers uh, a lark in a cage at the side of the room and around one of its legs, the lark has a golden ring. And so he takes this and he presents it to the uh, young woman and she says, good job. But, you know, and this is what I love about this story. It swerves off the normal ending of like or like sort of the predictable like beat of the fairy tale. She's like, all right. And now I'm going to let this bird go. Yeah, it's going to go out into the world. You must go seek it. Whoever can find this lark will be the one who marries me. Yeah, there's a version of the story where it's like, ah, I see the cage is being hung by a ring. And the and just as marriage is a cage, so too is, you know, uh, <laughs> the, thus, thus the symbol of the ring. You know what I mean? Like, and that's mm-hmm. not where it goes. She opens the fucking cage and lets the lark out uh, yeah. and says, whoever brings it back to me, we were going to get married. Mm hmm. So the first guy goes off or actually, so they all three go off and they go in different directions. The first guy goes off and he goes to like a swamp or something, but he encounters a, he's like going across a river maybe. uh, And he encounters a strange rider in Brown with Brown, uh, like a bandana over their face. Uh, And they have kind of a nightly duel at the Ford essentially. And importantly, the right boot has a ring of gold. Yes. Uh, yeah. So guy number one, he ends up just like uh, kicking the uh, brown rider's ass and then goes on. Yeah. Right. He just continues on. Let's him se- live. He says, you know, I uh, I'm going to leave you your horse. Mm-hmm. I stabbed you, but I'm going to leave you your horse because I'm a merciful man. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, also second- important. He dual wields. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> it's really important. You must like this. Point. You as a as a dritzed guy, you must love the dual wielding, right? Uh-huh. I like the wielding. Yeah. There's okay. never a time. I look when those angel women came out of the cloud <laughs> yeah, tank, dude. dual wielding pistols. I was like, this is the coolest shit. John Woo's so cool. son is here. <laughs> yeah. It would start with that. Like if I'm making the movie Book of the New Sun, it, you know, there are people who are involved in the film industry who listen to the show. I yeah. know that for a fact. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's here's my opening scene. It is smash cuts between uh, little kids reaching through a grimy gate in, uh uh, you know, the gray citadel, right? Smash cut to uh, Typhon, you know, in close up, two heads, Python whispering, right? Smash cut to angels breaking through a cloud bank, dual wielding pistols, Uh, you know, shiny skin, you know, these inhuman creatures. Uh, smash cut to hero deal taking off the mass. Yeah. Smash cut to little Severian standing in the uh, mausoleum. You know the the bit. You know Basil Ehrman's Romeo and Juliet. Oh yeah, I do. Hell yeah. yeah. You know the <laughs> bit in the prologue after the newscaster does the intro. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what's called in, in a Shakespearean play, right? The intro. Yeah, the intro. Uh, yeah, the intro. Yeah. The intro. Uh-huh. Then it does the like in fair Verona where we set our stage, and it's like intercut of all of the bits of the movie that are going to come up. But like mm-hmm. big shot of the of a Jesus statue in the middle of the streets, and then like faux found footage or like uh, archival footage of like the war between the, the Capulets and the Montagues. It's mm-hmm. this, this is the music I want with it, with all the images you just gave me kind of flashing through the life and times of Severian. I want <laughs> yeah, this. It's all, it's, all happening at one time. Yeah, 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 exactly. The time has, has collapsed, you know? Ugh. Yeah, that's my, <laughs> anyway. that's my opening bid. Someone hire me to make the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll do it. I believe I'll write it good. But yes, like absolutely. I, yeah. As much as I didn't care for the story broadly, 
I like a good dual wielding. You, you got. Me. I got you. I knew it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's the first fight. Yeah, the second guy, he he is uh, riding through the jungles and he comes across a like basically a, a bamboo bridge, right? The stereotypical like rickety bridge going over a chasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indiana and, Jones Bridge. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And standing there in the middle is this uh, figure in brown uh, with the gold ring about one boot. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he looks at it and he's like, also real quick. It might have yeah. been a bird a second ago. It might have been mm-hmm. a bird. Right? In and he form, thinks, it was much mm-hmm. like a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, decorative boot. Decorative, decorative boot. boot. And it seemed to fold its brown wings about itself. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, wait a minute. I know what metaphors are. I think <laughs> you are the lark that I've been sent to find. And the figure in brown is like, hmm, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, uh, you should probably take me back then, right? And uh, the guy's like, I think that this figure in brown is the lark I've been sent to find, but I really need to make sure that it, that that it's a bird. I need to make sure. I need to. I really need to make sure. So he comes up with a plan, which is that uh, he's going to. Bec- he's like walked out to the middle of the bridge. So he turns around and walks his horse back, and his right, plan. I, it can't be skipped. That part of the reason he arrives at this plan is he's like. This bridge thing fucking sucks. Also this. this. (laughs) It's so tedious. Oh, this is important, actually. Yes, it is. It is. Right. Right. Because it would also take too long. He's like, the bird could just fly. If I could just get this thing to turn into a bird, we could just like fly back. Uh, So his plan is. I'm certain it's a bird and not a guy. (laughs) I'm so positive that that was a bird. His his plan is uh, get get his horse to the end and then uh, once he's on the edge, cut the bridge and then jump and then uh, the uh, uh, figure in brown will be behind him, will fall and will be forced to turn into a bird. Uh, so he tries this and it doesn't go well. The bird just like takes off and is like, screw you. Uh, mm-hmm. Does he die? Does he fall? I think uh, he just. I don't. I think he. Oh, wait, wait. The guy himself. Yeah. I'm just making oh, sure the uh, so he's leading the horse. He doesn't yeah. even get that far. And he and he yeah. turned. No, he does. He gets to the end. He and he thinks I'll just drop that this guy in. He'll turn into a bird. Bing, bang, boom. We're, we're done. He turns and instead of his plans to cut the bridge, instead right. of cutting the um, like planks at the inside, cutting the supports, he cuts the handrails yes. first. Mm-hmm. And the and the bird guy just jumps onto the horse and rides him down oh, and kills that's it. him. Yes. That's it. Just yes. drives over. No, it's not. It's so the thing good. is, he does. It's not even his. It is. Or he jumps on. Right. He jumps on the the horse that the guy had gotten off of specifically. Yes. He dies yes. Yeah. The, the hooves of his own horse. It's great. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Idiot. It's excellent. Uh, yeah, that's right. Don't yeah. do this shit. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And so then uh, the third guy. He's off searching, I think, in the south, uh, and he comes across a figure in brown sitting on a horse in the middle of a stream. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, he thinks, OK, I think maybe that you're you're something's going on here. Uh, what is this? He right. says, yeah. you are an angel sent to guide me to the Lark. That's I it. Think, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, And then the writer says, uh, you have named me rightly. What would you have me do? 
Uh, Never will I attempt to thwart the will of the Liege of Angels, answered the youngest suitor. Since you are sent to guide me to the Lark, my only wish is that you shall do so. So I shall, said the angel, but would you go by the shortest road or the best? So here is how this plays off of the the previous interlude. At at that, the youngest suitor thought to himself, here surely is some trick. Ever the Imperium powers rebuke the impatience of men, which they, being immortal, can easily afford to do. Doubtless the shortest way lies through the horrors of caverns underground or something like that. Therefore, he answered the angel, by the best, would not it honor her whom I shall wed to travel any further. Uh, or any other, say, any other yeah, way, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, the writer's like, all right, cool. Like, let me get on your destroyer with you and we'll set off. I know there's a place near here. It's a port. So they go, uh, they buy a boat, uh, they get on this boat and they have like all sorts of adventures. They like sell of, the ring important. Yes. I think, yes. They, you know. they, yeah, they sell the ring, they get money, they go on all sorts of uh, sea adventures, they become famous traders. Uh, uh, at one point, like, the the figure in brown comes, is there uh, on the boat with him, uh, and the mask falls off the face, and it's a woman, a beautiful woman. Uh, and then eventually it turns out, hey, this boat that they're on, it's called the Lark. Well, it's called the and it's not, a, it's not a fancy boat. But it's a very famous boat because they've had so many cool adventures with it. And after uh, a long time, uh, you know, it's just they got it. They got to wrap it up. And so they sell the boat uh, and he heads back to the armager's house. Right. The, the this is the you know story of the armager's daughter. That's right. Right. Who, how this got, all got started off. They go back uh, and the angel, she is received by the family. And it turns out it's the armager's daughter. Gasp. And gasp. Uh, and she's like, all right, time to uh, prepare for the wedding. And he goes into her room, into her like bedchamber before the wedding, wearing his fanciest clothes. And he sees her again. Uh, and then what's that over there at the side of the room in that cage? Why, it's the lark with the ring around its leg. Mm-hmm. And so, she damn. says, and she says, oh, yeah, didn't I didn't the angel say you'd, you'd come back to the lark that, that they would guide you to the lark? Uh, and by the best road, each morning I open his cage and cast him out upon the wind to exercise his wings. Soon he returns to it, the cage, again, where there is food for him, clean water, and safety. Some say the wedding of the youngest suitor and the armager's daughter was the finest ever seen in my land. The dude is the lark. Mm-hmm. Do you see? It's the yeah. man that she sends them out. And the one who comes home is the is the lark who gets put in the cage, into her cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's good. I think it's fun. This is exactly yeah, the, I fun. love this. This is yeah. this this especially like the the descriptions of the places. There's like some real like earth sea vibes in this to me. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh I'm I'm eating it up. Yeah. And I just mm. love I love the way that it's like constantly like turning and like yes. deferring and like the whole point of the story is like take like like w- girls just want to have fun, right? <laughs> like she's just trying woman, to have a good time out here. Like right, she wants someone who is a companion and is going to do the things with her that she wants to do. Yeah, which of course is Foyla's story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um. So well, that's her deal. That's her deal. Hmm. Hmm. So which man do you think is which of the other other storytellers is which of the guys? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, um, interesting. I mean, I guess in some ways, Severian is supposed to decide that and doesn't. <laughs> Refuses yeah. to. Leaves instead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, got a side quest. Like, the beginning of the next chapter is him being like, I uh, have a horror at judging. 
because of how my secret role is obedience. I'm not <laughs> the one who judges. I can't judge. That's um, my whole deal. That's kind mm-hmm. of my whole deal. I should go join the <laughs> army instead. That way I won't ever have to make my own decisions. Uh, ideally, God know. would tell me what to do. And under that, ideally, the Altark would tell me what to do. But God damn it, I'll find anybody who tells me what to do so I can do something. <laughs> well, I think that probably the, um, you know, if, if we got to put it in, in terms of like the other ones. Yeah. Uh, not Melito. What's his name? Melito. Alvard. No, well, there's there's Halvard, Melito, and Lloyd. Oh, it is Melito. Yeah, yeah Melito is. The I think Melito must the... be the first one, because it's like I'm going to duel you. Well, and and he wins, but to what end? Right, right. You know, sure. the, the whole thing of like this this is my shittiest story I've ever told. Right, right? like <laughs> to what end? Right, and Halvard um, already has the stuff with the rope being cut, right. so he could be the second one. Right. Well, yeah. and and also it's it's a pyrrhic victory, right? right. Which is like, yeah, um, you are technically correct, but like, what is the what is the output? It's right. just like being caught up in this thing, um, the same loyal. family orders and all that. Yeah, I think I think yeah. Oh, think loyal. The, the thing one. that she wants is loyal. Yeah, it does. The seem one like that. who she gets to tell the story with. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I I think it must. I mean, not. I was going. It must be. It, it must be. be. <laughs> right. We resolved but, uh, it. I, yeah. Yeah. We got it. We figured it out. <laughs> Myth busted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool stories. Um, so we get, and ultimately, none of this matters because these people. Will, I think all of this matters, but I I know what you mean. Plotty yeah, plot plot reasons. Plotty plot plot reasons. But yeah. it does matter because I cry when she shows up again and says that line. And it's the first time I've even come close to having that that type of relationship with this book. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. The 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 thing there, I mean, just gets you right, right in your core, right? Yeah. Where she's like, look, all these people are dead. The only thing left of them are their stories. And Severian's like, you would never believe what i've got going on <laughs> and she's like no one's gonna remember them and he's like uh sister let me tell you i yeah, got well, it the thing that gets me like emotionally is actually not that part mm. it is what follows which is severian is like yeah severian copies down his memory it. of the thing into the brown book yes right? like yes into eternity um, um uh which it's so it's it's also she's confused and hurt Right. Yeah. She's like, do you recall the time when all of us told stories? I thought of that. This is while she's dying, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, three days ago. Yeah. Exa- I mean, right. Exactly. Um, uh, to be clear, what happens is eventually we're, we're going to describe a, a little adventure that Severin goes on. But when he's coming back, he runs into a guy who's like, yeah, I don't know if you want to head back to the Lazarette, my man. Uh, it's, uh, ooh, things aren't going great. And he gets there and it's like it has been attacked and, and everyone mm-hmm. is, is, has been dying while he stepped away. Uh, and so she continues, do you recall uh, uh, the time when all of us told stories? I thought of that. I said I knew she had. Uh, I said I knew she had been recalling that. And she says, I mean, while they were carrying us here, Melito and Halvard and the rest are dead, I think. You'll be the only one who remembers Severian. I told her I would remember always. I want you to tell other people on winter days or a night where there is nothing else to do. Do you remember the stories? And he says, my land is the land of far horizons of the wide sky. Yes, she said, and seemed to sleep. My second promise I have kept, first copying all the stories onto the blank pages at the close of the brown book, then giving them here just as I heard them in the long, warm, warm noons. <sighs> oh. <sighs> Damn. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, now you have to hold that in relation to what Severian does at the end of the next chapter when you think about your warmth for Severian. But uh, <laughs> that moment hits. So, yeah. Rip to the um, storytellers. No clue about what happened to Loyal, right? Loyal isn't accounted for at the end of no, this. So, no. Uh-huh. Well, we don't even know what army destroyed the Lazarette. No, do we? we have no idea. No. We know that it's like utter destruction. But I don't think we know anything else about it. Yeah. Yeah. The well, let's uh, let's talk about the other. So two things, I guess, happen with the Pelerines. First yeah. mm-hmm. is um, Severian prays with one and she kind of tells him the story that, Michael, you recounted a little bit of earlier about seeing a duel that happened at the sanguinary fields. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get a lot, I mean, that's interesting, I guess, but it's mostly just about kind of like beginning to loop this story backwards. Um, mm-hmm. as we've talked about a couple times, um, I guess the other, cause basically what's happening is like in these first couple chapters, it's like story in the storytelling contest story, essentially from someone in the Lazarette, you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of what's bouncing back and forth. Uh-huh. And so the other one that really matters here in terms of like, big stuff to talk about is uh what is the fella's name here winnick um winnick w- yeah winnick um yeah what do you think about this so we we get some like palamon lore mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean it, more of the cyclical stuff is happening right yeah mm-hmm. yeah palamon came out here at some point or left nessus in exile when he was a young man and one of the things he did was um, beat this guy Winnick, who was a at that point also a youth um, who was getting into trouble, and uh, Palamon, who I guess is being Palamon, who's just kind of described uh, similarly to, I guess I don't know if he was a lictor, if he was just a traveling. Mm-hmm. He's a journeyman. He's a journeyman. He, he, he's that. introduced he's by his title, or right. like Winnick knows his title. He's a journeyman, right? He so. describes him. Yeah, he does say journeyman Palamon. Um, uh, so he gets whipped, and and what Playmon tells him is, "Hey, you should find yourself a guild. You should find yourself something to be part of." Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, thirty years ago, Winnick is whipped for being a thief. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And then Winnick tries to find a guild, but no one will have him. Uh, and so he eventually sells. He eventually meets someone who says, "Oh, you know what you should do, buddy." You should sell yourself to the Pelerines. You know, there's three ways to become a slave, and one of them is you can sell yourself, and uh, you get a you get a, a signing bonus up top, <laughs> um, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, which is better than most jobs, right? Because you get the money up front, um, and they take care of you, and you can see the world. It's kind of like being in the army, except you don't. I mean, you get a sword. Isn't that kind of sick? Because you'll like defend them, <laughs> but you're not like at the front necessarily. So you can go see the world. You get to be a cool guy with a sword. You get, you know, your your hot meals per day. Uh, and and you know, the pelerines, they're you know, they're they're pretty good, all said. If you gotta have a boss, why not the pelerines? Um, and so he signs himself up for this, uh, and then realizes that the problem with being one of the pelerine slaves is they will just sell you if you are not good enough. Uh, if you mm-hmm. don't fit their needs, they'll just sell you to a worse master. And that will mm-hmm. not come with a signing bonus. And then you'll be condemned to whatever that life is. Because the other way a slave can be sold is there's three legal ways to, to, to have a slave in the Commonwealth. One is you showed up as a slave, as someone's slave. Yeah, okay, cool. You're allowed to have slaves here if they're outside slaves. 
Two is if you uh, the is it if the Altark specifically does it. Is that number two? Uh, uh, if you were captured, if you were captured, you are, right. you are by definition yeah. the Altark right, slave. Right, right, And then three, if you are sold, if you are if you sell yourself into slavery, and then once you're a slave, you can be sold. Slaves can be sold once they're slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he get, he he's at risk of that, uh, and so he does a good job, and he sticks around with the Pelerines, but he is tortured by the idea that. Uh, Master or journey at that point, journeyman uh, Playmon was torturing him. That this was also an excruciation. Uh, that by convincing him to do this, or by making him think that he should give himself to a guild, and make him think that that is the way towards happiness, this is the the lingering whip. You know. Hmm. Hmm. And you know, Severian's like, no, <laughs> uh, no, he wouldn't do that. It's a whole thing. We have a whole thing about the way we do punishment. We wouldn't do that. And the guy's like, oh, okay, cool. And so everyone's like, but wait, why would you believe me if you don't believe Master Plymon? And the guy goes, mm-hmm. oh, because if you wanted to torture me, you would have said the other thing. You would have yeah. said that, yes, he, he <laughs> was torturing me, which is interesting. I mean, it, yeah, this this whole thing is interesting because we get like a, I mean, this is the closest look we've gotten at the, the slave economy of the Commonwealth. Yeah, this one wasn't uh, saved for one of GW's notes at the back. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and this is, I mean, it's also interesting in dialogue with the uh, scene we got with Ava, because that's also told us more about the Pelerines specifically. So like right. the Pelerines are like the Pelerines have a class composition, right? They're, yeah. they're like, uh, uh, like optimates on up or whatever. Yeah, She says like, practically all of us are Armagets or exultants. It's yes. a rather aristocratic order. I, I'm afraid she's an optimate, I want to say. Okay. And like, uh, and she's an exception basically mm-hmm. to the rule. Um, right. Uh, or she's the daughter of an, of an optimate. It's very funny because she explicitly says, like, um, uh, I'm told some optimates think all they have to do is make a large gift and the girls will be accepted, but it really isn't so. They have to help out in various ways, not just with money. They also, they, uh, and they, ha- they have to have done it for a long time. The world, you see, is not really as corrupt as people like to believe. And it's like, my, my sister in uh, the the increate. You started this by saying that all of the the pelerines are armagets or exultants. <laughs> like you you, it is corrupt. It's just not corrupt in the in the sort of technical monetary sense that you can bribe your way in. It's simply corrupt in the traditional hierarchical class based sense. You know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's simply uh, blood nepotism instead of bribery. Right. Well, and they're also participating in the slave economy, right? right? They've got these slaves that they do seem to treat fairly well. You know, note they are still slaves and also the slaves that they don't like, the slaves who cause problems, just get passed on into worse situations, working yeah. in mines or whatever is what Winnick says. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that comes uh, through here is that like the Pelerines are of the world. Like right. it is whatever, right. like whatever uh, relationship they have to the conciliator and the claw and however true that that is uh, in like, you know, the, the mythological sense of like the world's fiction, they are still an order that arises from and responds to and is imbricated in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And that's also, I think, maybe one of the undergirding questions of both Ava and Winnick, which is also a question of Severian, right? Like, uh, uh, like who, like whose wagon do you hop on? And like, how do you choose that? Like, how do you affiliate yourself? And like, what are the ways that the the things that you affiliate yourself with, like provide structure and like meaning to your life? Yeah. Well, and the other thing really quick about Ava that we kind of 
you mentioned this in your summary, actually, Cameron, but we haven't really mentioned it, um, is that she is also, um, she is, the, we're getting the lore dump, right? We're getting the like, <laughs> we're just going to say it out loud here moment. He's, mm-hmm. We're just going to tweet it out. She's like, hey, yeah, sometimes I see a woman where you are. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she didn't tell me her name, but like, uh, or I guess she says, you didn't tell me, I don't know your name. But like, and he's like, oh, it's Severian. He's like, hmm. Or she's like, hmm. Isn't that one of those brother sister names? There's like Severian and Severa. Is is mm-hmm. Severa the one that's in there with you? Uh, and and he's like, no, it's Thecla. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is so funny. Uh, but yeah, it all it's all just like it all just comes out. She he says, you know, I, I ate the I did the corpse eating thing, and Ava's like, no, the corpse eaters are different. You don't strike me as a corpse eater. Uh, and he's like, I don't know he's what he's like. Yeah, I am. I am though. And she's like, well, it hit you different. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's just extremely direct. You know, I ate her flesh. It, uh, it took me a little while to integrate her, but now she's fully integrated into me. Um, uh, quote, I could feel her rotting there. I had a wonderful dream of her on the first night when I got back. Uh, when I go back among, among my memories, it's one of the things I treasure most. Afterward, there was something. Afterward, there was something horrible, and sometimes I seem to be dreaming while I was awake. That uh, that was the talking and staring you mentioned. I think now and for a long time, she seems alive again, but inside me. And then later, yep. he basically talks about like, oh, you know, I've kind of made peace with her now. She was a voice, but now I see myself as Severian Thecla. I am just a third person now. You know, what do you think about the explanation that's given here? That it's the claw that that well, while she is rotting in Severian's stomach, the claw, the claw brings her back it. to life. Yeah, I don't think that's right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I I don't think it is either. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the way that the analeptic interacts with the way that Severian with his memory, yeah, with his memory, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um. Although it is an interesting, I guess, provocation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if the claw does things, why couldn't it also partly do this? Right. Right. I also like that where she talks about the other um, eaters of the dead or whatever, right? And she's like, yeah, they're always mumbling to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is very funny, right? It's like in some ways it like even if you don't have a perfect memory, right? They the the ghosts still stick with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty cool. And Severian notably has been a person who mumbles to himself well before he took <laughs> yes. the analeptic, right? That's what's interesting there. Right. Right. Walking through the botanical gardens and just talking to himself as Agia leads him place to place. And she's like, right. all right, man, fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just got to get this kid to the, to the fields so that he can die and I can get his cool sword and we can sell it and we can move on with our lives. Right. I am desperate for more Agia, by the way. I'm dying. Well, you you know who we haven't heard from in a minute. Agia. Yeah. Well, we've heard of, from her more recently than uh, somebody else. Dorcas. No, that's not true, actually. Valer- Valer- no way, that is true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Is that true? I guess so. I guess that's true. Yeah, she pieced out a while ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. Oh, Hathor. Yeah, where the fuck He's is He's up ahead of you. Yeah. He is up ahead of us. Since since the middle of the last book, we've had that hanging over us. Maybe Hathor right. is the increase. He's up ahead of you, you know? <gasps> is, he, is he doing that? <laughs> well, so all of this is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Severian goes in, like, hides the claw in an altar. Mm-hmm. 
He's getting rid of this bad boy. He's saying, I'm I'm doing my job, even though the Pelerines won't take it. I'll hide he hides it there. Yeah. And then um the uh the head of the Pelerines is like off doing something. She's not there. Well, so like we should the, say really quick, the, he has mm-hmm. does he does he have his like wild long prayer night? Yes, his, like Dark Knight of the mm-hmm. Soul before he hides it, or is that after he hides it? It's after. It's at it's after he hides it first, and then he starts praying. I think so. Mm. Oh wait, no, maybe he does he, wait. Well, he does it right beforehand because he, so he goes yeah. there to, and he's pretending that right. he's praying. Right, and he goes, "Damn it, didn't you know that if you pretend to pray, <laughs> yeah, you just start praying. You just start praying. Mm-hmm. You can't That's how help they get it. you. Yeah, the pretense became the thing itself. Yep, and so he he uh, he says, uh, yeah. So I you know I started praying. Got going. Well, and the important thing here is again, like we're hitting this this another one of these depictions of uh, uh, sort of religiosity and and the touching the eternal. Where he's like, I was I was trying to talk to something beyond me, and it seemed as if there was a crack in the wall of the universe. You know, mm-hmm, yeah. And I shouted. Uh, okay, well, I wasn't shouting. I was whispering. Uh, mm-hmm. But but uh, uh, I. I was basically whispering to God about what my destiny was. And, you know, I wasn't saying to God, oh, let me let me lead the world. Um, but, you know, I was I was kind of, you know, talking about all these feelings I had through this kind of crack in the hole of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something and was listening. Something was listening. Something was there. It was me. And it was me. It's whispering into his own ear when he realized. And when I realized it, I flew into uh, flew into it like a bee and stood up. Don't you love it when you um, uh, you know move so that you could p- perceive the eternal and what you see is yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Oh, don't you know it? I love it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, find like- our efforts. Find our efforts. <laughs> Yeah, and then he has like a really cool dream. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then he puts it away. He like bloodies his fingers. He hides it underneath the altar. Right. Um, we get a whole description of like how this altar is put together and how he can plausibly take it apart to <laughs> put it back together funny. in this way. I'm really strong, so I could bend some stuff that other people <laughs> couldn't bend. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep, and then uh, he kind of has a, uh, I mean, the language of... Um, uh, peace, right, or sort of like clarity that I, you hear a lot in in religious conversion stories. Uh, you know, outside the cool air seemed expressly made for me a new creation and not the ancient atmosphere of Earth. I bathed in it, first spreading my cloak, then raising my arms to the stars, filled my lungs, as does one who has just escaped drowning in the fluids of birth. Hey, by the way, how'd this, how'd this story start? Oh, with yeah. Severian almost drowning? Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know much about that. Anyway, he has to do a side quest. Yep. Yeah, so he comes out of there like after having this like major maneuver, right? Yeah. And then uh the the like directress is like, "Hey, you look like a man of action. You look like the protagonist of this novel." <laughs> yeah. Do you think you can go do a side quest for me? And he said, "Yeah, sure. Probably." Uh and she says, "Look, there's an anchorite you know, like a religious guy, yeah. an important religious guy over there. You need to, uh, the war is coming. You know, the front line's getting pushed back. The Autark is kind of losing a little bit. Yep. 
we need you to go over there and get this guy for us. Yeah. And keep him from being captured or whatever. He's by hook or by crook, bring him back here. Talk him into right. it. Force him here. Whatever you got to do. And Severian mm-hmm. is like, well, sister, my charisma is 10, but my strength is 18. <laughs> he, I, I do love the joke there that he tells. What, what What's the thing at the very, hold on, let me see if uh, I can I'm find no diplomatist, it. But, but as for the other business, I can honestly say I have received long training. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's that's such a that's such a funny thing. To say. <laughs> it's a really because she says if you can't be persuaded, force him to come. It's like, but yep. Well, that's the one like, thing I'm good at. Like I just mm-hmm. talked to God. Like, Taken phone call. <laughs> yes. Just just talk to God. Now I'm ready to be hired muscle again. <laughs> yep. That's right. Um, and so yeah, he goes and does that in a uh, pretty cool way. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, she gives him like very specific instructions to get to the uh, the anchorite's house, and he's like looking at the map, and he's like, "This is a really weird map." And as he's like taking the route, he's like, "Well, this is this is inefficient too," because he sees he thinks he sees the house like up up on some cliffs. DM like, Gene I, is here again, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he's like, "Ah, well, I, I don't want to go through like the last leg of this. I'm just gonna." I'm just going to like scale these cliffs and get right to the house. And then he does that. And then he gets to the top and the house seems to be gone. He's like, what the hell? And then he realizes when he crawls back down, the house is still gone. And he has to like, like he can only see the house when approaching from a certain direction. So it's only when he actually follows the explicit instructions that he arrives at the house. Yeah. Right. This is like a fun walking simulator thing. Mm -hmm. Like I was thinking like, why haven't I done this in like Skyrim before? Right. Uh-huh. And the answer is because no one who makes like action RPGs is thinking about space in this way. Uh, you have to start getting into why you have to get into like outer wilds to get mm-hmm. this sort of like deferred spatiality shit. But it's so cool and more video games should do it. I want to approach a house that then isn't where it's supposed to be after I have a long, arduous climb of a of a cliff side in the in the dark. This stuff kind of happens in the in the God of War games. I guess it does. I guess it does. They, they do it yeah. because, you know, like the real technical issue here is like, how do you, how do you make sure players look at a thing? Right? And, right. and so it's like the Uncharted, the God of Wars are the only games where you can just be like, you cannot control the camera. But that's We're the telling thing. you what to look at. That's not what this is because what this is is he has the map and he disregards it. I want to make the right. stupid choice. I want right. to see it up there and try to like oblivion morrowind my way up the side of the cliff and then get up there and, and for it to smack me in the face and say, uh-uh, stupid, time shenanigans are happening. Get back down that mountain. That's right. You know? It needs to be a bad choice I make and then I'm, I'm chided for by reality. But you're right, yeah. because that is how the God of War and, and uh, Uncharted-style game works, is they control the camera for that moment. And Nathan Drake will approach the thing and then get there and be like, but I saw it. I know mm-hmm. I saw it. That, you know, And, and Stoli will be like, well, let's get back down there and try to follow the damn map, Drake. Mm-hmm. Uncle Grandpa? That's <laughs> me. Um, but I love that bit, that he's like, he has the map, and he has the directions, and they say it's going to take you a couple days. And he looks up and sees the house, and he's like, "He's like, I'm, I'm here already. I'm here already. I just got to climb the damn thing. Forget these directions. What happened to all that obedience, buddy? Hmm. <laughs> anyway, he goes okay. back down and finds his way there. Yep. 
and a really cool guy who is not beautiful, but really cool looking. Must emphasize, like, the coolest looking guy you've ever seen. So cool that uh, even as I'm trying to, like, sketch him out here, I cannot draw for you how cool he looked. His skin was fine as a woman's, too, but there was something womanish about him. And the beard that flowed to his waist was of the darkest black. His robe seemed white, but there was a rainbow shimmering where it caught the candlelight. All right, bud. <laughs> all right, all right, calm down, Severian. <laughs> um, and yeah, this guy's. Ha- I mean, this is some. This to me is much more. I mean, not directly Earthsea, but like fairy tale, even though it's explicitly science fiction. Where it's like, this guy is from a future that doesn't exist right. yet, right? Mm-hmm. But could, but could, yeah. Uh, and you, you got to talk to him and like figure out what his deal is. Um, and that's fun. So basically, he's got a what a three story house, and every story of the house is in a different time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one is in like the far future dead Earth where glaciers have overtaken everything. Uh, one is in the middle, which is like a little far in the future, but not too far in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one is the the oldest for him because he's from the very very far future, and it's Severian's time. Um, and he's just he's like the last watchman. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean, yeah, he's I mean, just like hanging out, house, observing the earth. And this is the yeah. last. Yeah, exactly. He's the last guy to, to watch this place get covered in snow. Yeah. And he's ice. like, yeah, he's like a, a just there at an outpost. Like he is there to to watch this happen, basically, and yeah. make some sort of like recording or impression of it. And that's his job because he talks about in the middle time period, it's uh, there are still people on Earth, um, but the vast majority, he says, have been evacuated by the Kakajans. Right. Uh, and he is like a descendant of those refugees. And now he has been sent back to Earth in his own time, which is the far, far future. The sun is on the verge of going out like Severian can look, you know, directly at it. It's just like a star in the sky. And uh, it's it's Ragnarok, the final winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I have a question. How do we think What's the Pelerines know about this guy? Do you think that like they that that like the head of the Pelerines or, or one of these other people who are like towards the top, like sometimes comes here and like meets with him and does a little like tete-a-tete talk? Like, you know, we're both wise people, let's exchange some stories. Do you think that they've just heard rumor? Like, I mean, she has directions, so she knows how to get here, I guess. But like this is some like if they know about this guy, then they know some stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, they know about the future. I guess maybe they, I, yeah, well, a they potential to, they, future. That's important. It is. Yeah. It's a potential future again, unfinalizable, right? <laughs> um, uh, a multitude of possibilities, but well, yeah, how they do they know, know about a future? How a do they future. know about this guy? And how do they know about this guy, but not understand that bringing him back seems impossible? Actually, hmm. I don't know. I, I know you want something better than that. No, yeah. I yeah, I know. I'm just posing posing a question. But you my don't. answer is I I don't know and I don't think Gene cares. Okay. Sure. <laughs> like just to just to be totally like perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I just I don't I don't think that it's like a question that the thing is interested in. I think that maybe they think of him really and truly seriously as like a religious like person, they mm-hmm. call him an anchorite, right? They—that's how they see right. him. Yeah, right. Um, I—I I think that if 
I mean, he's the guy who can tell them, hey, here's what's going to happen to the world if the new sun doesn't come. Right. Right. That's and, kind of what I, I want to know what they want from him. I don't don't know. Yeah. Uh-oh. Sorry. It's yeah. fine. If this was fallout, no, I'd have a good a, speculation for you here, but I just got I got nothing. I need the fallout dialogue tree where I can say, well, why do you need this anchorite? <laughs> you know, what do you think they're going to say? That's not for you to know, Outlander. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rebooting That's Fallout. It. I'm just combining it outright with Morrowind. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I mean, we all accept it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We all want that to happen, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, what do we make of the fact that this is like a potential future? And that Severian immediately is like, well, I met another guy who was a plant. Yeah. And he said he, he said the future was different from this one. I like that a lot. I think yeah. that's really, really cool. That's cool. Where he's like, hey, listen, I know about futures. <laughs> they could go a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we think of put both of those in connection to Father Nere's mirrors, which which is kind of his first touchstone? He's like, now, wait a second. This also reminds me a lot of the cabin in the in the jungle within oh, St. Yeah. Goma and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, this is also where I think he suggests for the first time that perhaps that was not the past, but a potential future also, which I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I what's interesting is like this is such a restrained moment. It's mostly yeah. just like there is this guy. He exists. There is a set of potential futures here. Don't think about it too hard. Yeah. Because you don't need to. Well, and it's interesting uh, because it feels like this guy doesn't Ash his name. He has a name, Master yeah. Ash. Doesn't have mm-hmm. perfect knowledge of Severian's time either, because he's like, "Oh, tell me about what's going on with the front. Tell me like what the mm-hmm. what's happening up there, uh, and tell me what's up with the Commonwealth." You know, um, and he's like, "Hmm, your Commonwealth's stronger than I would have believed. Then no wonder your foes are in despair." You know, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting is like maybe, you know, I do wonder if like. I don't know, because there's some I, this whole thing. It's, this feels like a like of all of these stories. This is the most inserty to me, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like the yeah, sure um, Gene making this into a full book, because like a lot of the stuff there doesn't really uh, align with what we know so far. So like his thing is like, oh, tell me about the things that are going on. But then he says pretty explicitly, like, you're real because like you already happened. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm potential yeah, like I'm right. real in my time, but I'm not real in your time. And it seems like there's a, I don't know, um, a flippancy with the time stuff here that doesn't feel this does not align with the green man scene, I guess is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Which is like, why did the green man not get obliterated when he came to the past? Right. Well, like, I mean, what Ash says, right, is that if he leaves the house, his probability may collapse to zero. Seems like the green man's probability, whatever it is, is not zero. But I, also, I, are, I guess that's yeah. Right. I also this, think that these are not the same thing. Right. I think the green man and the hero duels traveled through time. And I think that the tower exists across time. Mm-hmm. And those are different things. It is not a means of conveyance. Right. It has perspectives on these other times, yeah, but it is not. A, it is not a. It I is thought not you a were a materialist. You just went on this long. Yeah, rant I don't about live in severe. I don't live in the book of the new sun. 
Also, I don't know how time travel mm. works. Time travel might work this way, materially. Yeah. Mm. We haven't built it yet, clearly, because mm. we don't have time travelers walking around. Maybe we never will. Mm. Or there's time cops out there preventing someone from kicking down my door right now. You know, mm. from I the read Planetary. I know how this works. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm. I don't know. This is, uh, yeah. I think yeah. it's a different thing. I think that we've seen I, I the vehicles of the Herodals and the Green Man explicitly says, I traveled back in time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not what yeah. this guy thinks he's done. Yeah. It is weird. Yeah. But I get it. You know. Yeah. He also and says. That's what you said, Michael, right? What did I say? That it's a probability that, that he's not yes. 100% probable, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. No, I understand how the scenario functions. Okay. Hmm. The green man okay. is in all futures. Yeah. This guy lives in a time after the green man, right? I guess he doesn't. No, he well, doesn't. No, they're, I, like, they we don't know. He, they they yeah. are incompatible futures. So, I mean, the oh. thing, the thing, right, the thing that Ash says uh, is hmm. that, like, uh, Time is not just not linear, like it's not even not linear in the way that we're thinking. Mm. He speaks of it as um, like fabric, right? Which has multiple threads running in all directions, right? Right. A tapestry, right? It weaves together. Yeah, he's from the future in which the new sun never comes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he says, you know, because the coming of the glaciation is not like post new sun. That's not what he says. He says like, you know, the, the middle term time of like when you can see the glaciers coming out off the mountains, like... Yeah. He's like, that's in your future, Severian, but it's not like your grandkids' future, but it's not not that far. You know right. what I mean? It's pretty close. And the Green Man is from, like, the far, far, far future, of course, but it's a place where, like, the sun is so powerful that, like, of course these, never glacier, these glaciers will never come. So, like, this is the... He is in the future where Erebus and Abaya win, I guess, you right. know, in, in some sort of... of if, you, if we think about this as a good evil scenario. But it's one in which... The the sun fails, you know. He says that explicitly. The sun's yeah. power increases, but it gets smaller, and eventually, it just looks like a star. Um, and so, yeah, he's from like the bad end future, mm-hmm. um, where the, where the new sun never appears. And I don't know. Yeah, I think it's awful convenient that. I think it's awful convenient that time just happened. That time travel just happens to work this way now. Right. Mm-hmm. It, mm. it feels a little like. Mm. Uh, the I other important, I'm going to go on record as I don't mind it because it's all bullshit. <laughs> this is my version of it's all I could up. beat yeah. up Superman. It's right, all made yeah. up. I get it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I What's important that. is the feeling you get when he disappears from behind Severian. Mm-hmm. However it's you so get good. to that, I don't care. What it's I want so to good. get to is Severian trying to talk to him, him saying one last thing, maybe, potentially, or Severian's imagining it, and he's gone now. You know? Mm-hmm. So... Yep. Yes, just the other thing to flag that he, he well, says. He's not gone. He's not oh, gone. He's, right, you're right. Sorry he's, to interrupt. He's Michael. still there yeah. as like a. Because, yeah, he's like a probability wave, right? So, yeah. like, if you don't look right at him uh-huh. and you just kind of assume he might be there and treat him like he is, then he is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Except after a while, he is totally gone. I like what, yeah, yeah. What I do like is when Severian goes back and sees uh, the Lazaret has been destroyed, and he doesn't. He like waits for a day because he's not really sure where to go, and he basically wonders like, did Master Ash respawn back at the last house? <laughs> like, could I go back and see him again? Yeah. <laughs> well, and he comes up with this thing right where he's like, um, yeah, I had another guy. So he runs into an Ulan in the in the road. 
Uh, and the the Ulan's like, so you're on this mission, huh? For the for the Pelerines. He's like, yeah. And if, if you, you see this- to an Ulan in the road, yeah, I know you kill him. Um, mm-hmm. The he's like, oh yeah. If you see this guy, uh, let me know. If you run into this guy I was looking for, a be long beard, and it's like that's a lie. He knows what happened here, but also. If you're thinking about the probability of it all, could he have just made a break for it <laughs> at some point when Severian wasn't looking? Could probability wave Master Ash is one of the things that's possible is he just ran away. <laughs> he just like <laughs> took off into the wilderness. Hey, what do you think about his name being Ash? Like Ash Ketchum? Mm-hmm. No, isn't that one of the people in the play? No, you're thinking of like okay. Meshia. Mesh, which, which comes no. up here. No, yeah. I'm not. Meshiane comes up, right? The, the last the does first come woman. Yeah. Is there an Ash in the play? Mm. I don't remember an Ash. I know it's somewhere around doing the research for that. The name Ash came up, but now I don't know why. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, we'll have to talk to our research team and see what they can. Yeah. What they can. I'll pull just up. talk to the team. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was in the executive summary they gave me. Yeah. Oh, okay. <sighs> Yeah, you know, it's not like a you don't think that the, an executive summary of a Pokemon episode got mixed in potentially. <laughs> we're talking about Jigglypuff a lot now that I think or about or of um, uh, real real reveal of myself that I went to Pokemon Ash and not Evil Dead Ash, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's probably for the better. Yeah, eh. it's probably to your benefit that you did that. Maybe. You don't think so? Who could say? I, you know, I don't have a horse in that race. The other day I was in a situation where someone professionally asked me something uh, about my opinion about like some words we were going to use for a project, you know, and I mm-hmm. said, I, I don't really have a dog in this race because I hate both of these dogs. Uh, and, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think it was because we used dog and not horse that it really hit for me that I said it and I'm still laughing about it days later. It's the most New Jersey. you've ever. Heard. It, it really is. It's the most Jonas I, I am in some ways. <laughs> As the dog said to the, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, there was another then thing we, in this that I actually wanted to hit, and now I've forgotten yeah, sure. what it is. So maybe I don't need to hit it, you know? I mean, I, oh, mean, I such, remember It seems it like such an impactful segment that ultimately is not. The thing that I, yeah, the thing that I wanted to hit is nothing to do with any of the time travel stuff or any of the end of day stuff or Ragnarok. It's that he, it's that Severian wakes up and is like, oh, I don't have a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and... Two things. One, as a torture, I had not so much considered my sort of weapon as a as a tool and a badge of office, which is interesting. But two, he has all this stuff about how he feels naked without Terminus Est. He's not had Terminus Est for like a long fucking time. Mm-hmm, Do you know what yeah. he doesn't have anymore? Is the claw the of the claw. conciliator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't make that connection, which is really interesting. No, he would never get there. No. Yep. <sighs> Uh, the only other thing I wanted to point out is something that you gestured to in the summary, Cameron, which is that uh, Ash says that religion and science are ultimately equivalent because they are both acts of faith. Yes. Right. Not much to say about that other than like. Uh, uh, hey, Gene, what's up? Yeah. Classic engineer, Christian engineer thing to say. Right. Exactly. Right. That, that there are uh, ways to recognize like when a book is like trying to put uh Limits is like maybe too harsh a word, but like there there are times when you're reading a story where it can become very clear that like the author is trying to put parameters on how you're to understand it. And this yeah. is one of them to me. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Sure. This is this is like Gene's thoughts. Mm-hmm. 101. Um, 
he Severian goes back to the thing. We've talked about it quite a bit, you know, uh, finds out everyone's kind of dead mm-hmm. or dying. Um, does this kind of like guidance maneuver, right? Where he's like, I will remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ends up joining some troops. Yep. What do we think about Guasached? I think he's a funny little guy. He's so <laughs> funny. I yeah. love him so. So I did that uh, Star Wars uh, mm-hmm. uh, LARP uh, hotel. Oh yeah, yeah. Before it closed, mm-hmm. and one of the characters in that was a you know there, there's kind of like different narrative tracks, right? So there's like the Jedi track and the Sith track and the mm-hmm. and I did the smuggler track, and the smuggler character was a um, a uh, a record promoter. Basically, the smuggler storyline <laughs> was about a like a a pop idol who's actually a front for a, a heist ring. She's doing heists to fund a, a, rev- a revolution on um, the planet that the the the, tw- the Twi'lek are from, Ryloth. It rules, hmm. right? It's like the only good politics in that thing. Um, she like has this whole big expansive thing about like, even when the Republic was occupying us, we were occupied, right? Uh, anyway, the, the record promoter guy is the slimiest, skeeziest dude in the world. Uh, extremely baby girl to me. Um, and that is uh, Guasached. He has that exact demeanor of like you know, he reminds me a little bit, a little bit of the Al- the Alcade back in uh, book two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, he has that like, uh, listen, bud. We're both in the grimy world. We're both just trying to get through. Uh, how'd you like to have a hot meal? I can make it so you can have a hot meal. You know, I know that's what you really want right now. All uh, you gotta do is fight my big horses. You gotta. Fight- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to haze you a little bit, but that's, I find that a little hazing goes a long way. It's really funny. The guy who recruits him initially on the road is like immediately the first thing he's like, yeah, everyone gets hazed, right? <laughs> anyway, let's go. Let me go feed you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's great. Um, we, we do get, so yeah, like uh, Severian has this initiation ritual where he's got, got like fight a destrier essentially. Which again, and there's a woman riding on the back. Just I mentioned this. Beating him with whips and stuff. He gets on the destrier. Yeah. And it says, the instant I was seated, the destrier struck like a Bushmaster at my leg. Yeah. How? With what appendage? I think, so I think two things happen there. I think that's like when a horse turns around and bites you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which mm-hmm. they can do. Sure. Uh, but there, you are right that later on they're talking about how often the destriers will try to kick their passengers. And yeah. so it seems like they can, like, kind of like a cat can, you know, they can reach up on their back mm-hmm. and kick a little bit. Yeah. These aren't horses. No. I mean, they. <laughs> there's a bit where, just to make it clear, Severina says, <laughs> and I saw its hoof, what we call the hoof, would actually be better understood as talons. Yes. Yeah. And, yep. and it's using those talons to, like, do whirlwind strike. <laughs> he says that their feints outsped his eyes. Yeah. It's cool. It's like that yeah. RDC world uh, uh, I'm a side character skit where <laughs> where the guy is watching the other two guys fight and he's like, he can't keep up with the fight because he's an anime anime side character. Severian is watching this thing going, oh, I, I got to get out of here. This horse is going to kill me. <laughs> it isn't, though. He wins. He wins. And then and then maybe he assaults a woman again because. Unclear. I don't know if he does here. I actually. I, I don't know, you know dude. Yeah, I know. I just it's read, interesting. I don't know. Like, I truly don't know. So, yeah, the hazing ritual is go fight this horse and its rider in a circle, right, of mm-hmm. other soldiers. 
Um, it's going to try to kill you. You're going to have to fight it off. Uh, uh, she's the rider is going to whip you, you know, and then eventually he wins that fight, rides through the group, grabs the former rider who he has uh, knocked off the horse and just kind of rides the horse out until it's calmed down. Right. Like rides it into the into the jungles as a way of tiring it out. And then finally, you know, he he puts it down. He, he doesn't put it, he doesn't kill it, but he, you know, he gets off the horse, he stakes it or whatever. Not, not like a vampire. He doesn't stake it. You know what I mean. <laughs> no, um, he stakes it. Stakes it with a, with a wooden stake. Uh, he, he talks to the woman and the woman is like, all right, I guess this is going to happen. You're going to want to whip me. I see it in he your eyes. He grabbed her by the hair on the way by, by he, the way. Yeah, he did yeah. grab her off the ground yeah, by her by hair. Her hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, um, listen, I, you know. I had to whip you. That's the that's the role I played. But you're going to want to whip me back with the reins of the thing, huh? And he's like, why do you think that? And she's like, you look like the type. Besides, you carried me from my ass, bottom up. And men who do that always want to spank my ass. I get it. Uh, and and he's like, listen, you know, uh, I mean, he does actually say, listen. Um, uh, uh, hey, listen. Hey, listen. I get it. It was an initiation. I get it. And then she's like, oh, okay, so you're not going to hurt me. Uh, And he says, I didn't say I wouldn't hurt you. Yeah. And then the book describes her eyes growing in fear, basically. Oh, actually, no, I skipped the most important part, which is he says, or you could kill yourself. Have you a knife? Yeah. Severian, come on. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is Severian. You think, yeah, I thought about, I had that same thought. I had that same thought. I thought it was Thecla, like. I think this is Thecla. Being mm-hmm. shitty to, not being shitty to, but like getting one on Severian here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it's it's worth pointing out the very beginning of this chapter. And this is one of the reasons why this is, it's another like weird moment of uh, things not quite fitting in interpretation. Mm-hmm. But the very beginning of this chapter, uh, Severian is thinking about Thecla yeah. uh, and actually thinking about, yeah, she had dwelt here longer to, to question too much and I raise memories of it. I might learn something. Yeah. Uh, thinking about uh, uh, Thecla and uh, specifically he's talking about Dorcas. He's saying yes. like, I love Dorcas and for mm-hmm. a while there, I loved Thecla, but now that Thecla is part of me, now mm-hmm. that I had grasped her indeed in an embrace, I mean, okay. We were talking about the pros here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now it seemed, if only because she had been a part of me so long that I had grasped her indeed in an embrace more final than any coupling, or rather, that the that as the male's seed penetrates the female body to produce, if it be the will of Aperion, a new human being, so she, entering my mouth, by my will, had combined with the Severian that was to establish a new man. I who still call myself Severian, but I'm conscious, as it were, of my double root. Um, so just like just like the male seed enters the female body, so did Thecla enter my mouth mm-hmm. and then combine with me. Right. And the the new man language there, that's like a Christian tag as well. Right. The new man is is like man redeemed by the covenant with Christ. Right. Right. Scales falling from my eyes. mm -hmm. Uh, I have entered into a covenant with the Lord. Right. Right. And also the next paragraph is about Miles Jonas, Miles hyphen Jonas. This this sort of doubling is constant. But for Severian, he is just Severian still. He still calls himself Severian. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yes, I had the same thought of like this is Thecla. Mm -hmm 
prodding at Severian in saying well, this. Well, she's also, like, she's the one who's trained to ride. That's yeah. been established yeah. already. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the cruel one. Yeah. Is like, she? I mean, that's just I don't the, think that that's, that's true. And I'll tell I you why. I think so. Yeah, she, she is. She's the one who got joy of beating prisoners. Yeah, but but I, I'm going to come back to the Jolenta assault for a second, which is right. Jolenta is glamored in a way yeah. that produces uh, lust and uh, attraction in people. And it's so important to me that in that scene, the way that that felt for Severian was the desire to punish. And that's what's I, happening I, here. I, I think those are two different things. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's exactly right. I agree with that reading. I think the desire to punish and the desire to be cruel, I think the book does a lot. I think the book has done a lot to distinguish those two things from one another. Um, and uh, alongside questions of judgment, right? I we, We've talked about it before. Thecla, the, the unity of Severian and Thecla is the unity of judgment and application. Right, but I think that this she is, is a again, judge. I think that this is framed as as punishment again because she she it is it is um, well that's why that's why I guess what I'm saying like where I don't know what happens here right. because I truly read the final thing here is deeply ambivalent right Severian says at the very end you know uh, she looked over her shoulder at me with large eyes because she's well, she's afraid before that right. what he's, he's he's tripped her yes yes yeah, she was yeah, trying to she's run and on the ground her. yeah and he says. You said you wouldn't run. Right. She looked over her shoulder at me with large eyes. I said, you have no power over me, neither you nor they. I am not afraid of pain or of death. There is only one living woman I desire and no man but myself. Right. That's the end. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that is a very distinct unification, right? Mm -hmm. If we read Thecla flatly, right? Which I think there's probably a more productive read to be made of Thecla, but I think the book or, you know, Gene, especially toward the end here is giving us one that we're a preferred, in Stuart Hall's term, a preferred reading, Mm -hmm. right? I think the preferred reading here is like Severian is unified. Severian and Thecla are unified. Thecla loves Severian. Severian loves Dorcas. And right. whatever is a remainder here, you know, whatever desire is in Severian is very strange um, and outside of like whatever he was up to before. I just don't think this is the same thing as the Jolenta scenario. I don't think uh, it's the same it scenario double if it weren't but, weird. But I do right? think he tripped her as she rose. And I do think yeah. he said you said you wouldn't run. Oh, I think he is. He is. I, I think that whatever is operating here is deeply cruel and violent. You just think it's grounded in Thecla. I don't. I think it's yeah. I, like I'm the way that he talks about her and the way that this whole sequence is framed around the idea of returning to him or returning to her what she did to him around the reins and the whipping is mm-hmm. so in line to me with the way that Jolenta was talked about then. Mm-hmm. I think so too. But but Severian is not vengeful in this way, right? At least not with random people. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is, this not is random the thing people. for me. This is the person who just whipped him. I don't. I mean, I guess that's right. I mean, I, I, he is a quick to anger in revenge yeah. on women. Remember what know. happened in the, yeah. in, the, so... in the house azure? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, this absolutely. again. Yeah. Yeah. Or in the gardens in Thrax, right, where the ladies laughed at him right. and he was like, yeah, oh, yeah, I exactly. might murder you. Yeah. It is repetition of the thing. I think that this is. I think that this is repetition with a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think I think here at the end of the book, if we're thinking about what are the differences that make a difference, Thecla is the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, then this is the part where I think it's Thecla when she said, or when he says, or you could kill yourself, have you a knife? 
because yeah. it's Thecla calling Severian a coward again and saying, mm-hmm. you get off on this, yes. don't you? And I'm not saying yeah. Thecla doesn't, isn't, doesn't have a cruel streak. We know that she visited the, the uh, office building prison uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and helped and tortured people for fun, um, yeah. for sure. But I do think that this, that, that part of it separates. I think she's, she, I, I mean, we, but we know that it's both of them, right? Fundamentally, it is not either one of them. It is both of them. They are one person now, right? But I don't, I see this as also in continuity with things that have been in Severian forever. It can't 100%. be reducible yeah, to I, that. Please, yeah, please do not mistake me as being like, uh, and, and this is Which this is, other character doing the thing, right? right? right. But there, there, if this that thing is how is it sounded like that, it did sound like what you were saying was this is Thecla's cruelty, which I can't, it isn't just that. I think that that, yeah, it is not just that. I think the added, additive piece of Thecla is that sharp edge mm-hmm. of her. Well, I think the um, question then, right, and then I don't think there's an answer to this, right? I think, again, this is like the, um, the flaw in the heart of the gem, right, that you need to sort of mm. like interpret, right, is uh, has the conflation or the addition of Thecla's cruelty with Severian's, like, in many ways, right, he, he begins the chapter by saying it has made him a new man, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that that is mm-hmm. definitely true. Uh, yeah. But Wolf, in this book at least, doesn't give us always those pat answers. And so the question is like, yeah. well, what happens with uh, Severian's cruelty plus Thecla's cruelty, right? Does this resolve yeah. in a cruelty that can like, you know, if, if they can, can they be like locked together like snakes biting each other's mm-hmm. own tails uh, and just say threatening stuff to other people? Or is right. there going to be like an outward expression yeah. onto others of their joined kind of like worst tendencies? Yeah. Right. Well, I think so. I guess like three or not three, but like two things that like make this complicated for me because because I, you know, that make it unresolved for me. Right. One is the the unification uh, that you're talking about, Michael, of like what happens when they run together and what happens when they run together is something we've talked about before that I just mentioned a minute ago, which is like it unifies obedience and the capacity to command right Right. that is Mm -hmm. and that's the Mm -hmm. exultant to non-exultant thing that is her uh, aristocratic training versus his uh you know um uh guild training right like that's everywhere this kind of duality thing we've talked about that in a bunch of other episodes right like nothing is new here um the other thing is that severian has zero problem telling us things that happen. Like, that's how we know what happens with Joe Lynch is. He tells us directly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is this is left ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Right, and but that, the that same Severian wrote that that wrote this. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So I, I yes. it's, is this, I think this is part of, this is part of where I think the Thecla Severian stuff kind of struggles is there are times where narratively, Severian begins a Severian, becomes Severian who has eaten of the Alzabo and Thecla. Thecla's in there. They're having conversations and memories. Then they slowly assimilate into one being, um, right. which happens all in the past of the writing of the Book of the New Sun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We, and we've talked about that in the kind of editorial 100%. decisions of transformation of Book 1 to Book 2. And yet it seems like there are times that they have not fully assimilated as authors, and there are times when it feels like Thecla is making decisions about what's going in the text and sometimes where it feels like Severian is making decisions, mm-hmm. which I, get, I think, again, probably speaks to the thing that you often bring up, which is like these books are written in real time. These, these are not, yep. you know, emanations f- full and complete and divine, you know. Um, uh, but I do think that there are that it's, it's hard to attribute this editorial decision to just Thecla when narratively part of what's being said is we are one being now, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also the, you know, the, what Michael's been saying 
for you know the past hour, right? Like there there's the flaw in the jewel right. kind of thing going yeah. on, right? Yeah. Which is like, um, you know, stepping all the way back to to like a paradox, right? Like the problem of the Trinity is the problem of Severian and Thecla too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. have it all at one time? Mm-hmm. Theoretically, it's all one thing, and yet it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are material creatures in the world, and yet there's like divine spirit in them. I, I think part of this too is just like straight up uh, poison by knowledge stuff. Not around this. There's like no section we're going to read. You know, in the next two readings, it's going to be like, and and that's why I was right. right about all that. we like, get is that the two of them do continue right. to. We get her hand in his a few, you know, chapters from now or whatever, right? right? Um, and, and but the thing to think about, you know, or the thing that's going to matter in, you know, as we get toward the end of the book is like. This is a story about the new sun, and it, it is highly dependent on Catholicism. And you can imagine how those things are going to run into one another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I don't know. I, I think this is a, a fascinating uh, doubling, as we've talked about a bunch of different times. I don't think it clearly resolves into anything. I think I have the same problem you do, Austin, that like it is dependent on our previous readings of other things yeah. and is clearly trying to do something with a difference but it's and I can, I can intuit what I think the differences are but it is not interested in resolving them or clarifying those in the way that these situations around Severian often have been to an attentive reader. Well, the there's no is there have been attentive lots of, reading that gets you a better reading here. There have been lots of moments where, where they sh- say loudly how Severian has decided to do something differently than what he would yeah. have done before. You know, escaping yeah, Thrax, holding up the, the claw to heal those who he had imprisoned. And, you know, he doesn't yep. free them or anything, right? Going back to cure the the little girl and the boy, right? Like, yep. um, that is not this, right? And for me, I'm going to default to a, like, they are who they said they were, you know, who we knew they mm-hmm. were. And I don't know that I'm going to grant that this, that this horror movie sequence where she looks over her shoulder having been tripped with large eyes doesn't resolve in what is being set up there. I do, you know, you have no power over me can also mean I have no desire for you. Like I get that. Um, yeah. uh, there, you can, it is an open reading in that way, but I'm, I'm more, I, the reading that makes more sense to me is the one that I feel has been set up from the previous things, which, you know, mm-hmm. that's just both, mm-hmm. it's where we both are. It's just that we kind of read different things. Does she show back up? Yeah. She, yeah, she puts this, her hand in his. This, Wait, is that her? That's yes. Daria. That's Daria. This is Daria. Oh. They fight together, and like yeah. in, in, I totally didn't pick up her name here at all. That's why I wrote in the notes, "Who the hell is Daria?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's is, in my notes. Where yeah. I wrote, "Who is Daria?" Yeah. Well, before this all happens, one of the things. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Where is where is she labeled Daria? If you can do it without knocking Daria off, you can have her until we run you down. Fascinating. Then what is the reference when they touch each other's hands? It's what this is during the sequence where he's afraid. And she stands. No, 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 no. I know uh, I, what the scene is, but that made me even more. Yeah, dude. <laughs> well, remember, because uh, she also says at the beginning of that sequence, after he's out in the jungle when it's just the two of them, she's like, we could have fun here. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, yeah. you know, it is you could have as much as you want. You're going to have what you want as much as you want. We won't go back until it's time to eat, you know? And then he says, I didn't say I wouldn't hurt you. Where, where yeah, the, the so what smiles. they say to each other, what what uh, what she says, wait, no, 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 wait, this is Severian. Uh, they're afraid in the battle later, as you're yes. saying, Yes, yeah. you're about to remind me of the boast I made to you in the forest. 
What is the boast? It's the thing at the end. You have no power over me. I'm not afraid of is anything. Is that the I'm not boast? A, yes, I am not afraid yeah. of pain uh, or of death. There is only one living woman I desire, and no man right. but myself. And she's like, and he's like, oh, I'm so I'm fucking full of shit. I'm the biggest coward. Yeah. I'm ever scared lived. as hell, bro. Right? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's her. Mm. No. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I, I. I. My mental model is is fully. Uh, conform to to reality. Now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I just and don't. remember anyway. he also looks at her and has that like that whole little bit where, <laughs> where where he's like, "What if all of my exes were here and also soldiers <laughs> next to me? Yes. What would what would th- what if all all the oh, beautiful they- women I've ever I've ever met? I could not help thinking when I saw her. This is Daria. <laughs> I'm gonna mm. re- I rescued Daria, who I had not known was in the column in this column in this way. She looked very pretty yeah. and boyish, dressed as a trooper with a contest, which is this kind of like polearm laser gun thing flame gun, I don't know, and a slender saber on either side of her saddle horn. I could not help thinking when I saw her of how other women I had known would appear in the same situation. (laughs) Uh, Thea as a theatrical warrior maid, beautiful and dramatic, but essentially the figure of a figurehead. Thecla, now part of myself, a vengeful mimalone, brandishing poisoned weapons. (laughs) She's specked poison. It's so funny. Adria astride a slender-legged sorrel, wearing a a cuirass molded to her figure while her hair plated with bowstrings flew wild in the wind. Jolenta, a floriate queen in armor, <laughs> spiky with thorns, her big breasts and fleshy thighs, absurd at any gait faster than a walk, smiling dreamily at each halt and attempting to recline in the saddle. Dorcas, a naiad riding, lifted momentarily like a fountain flashing with sunshine. Valeria, perhaps an aristocratic Daria. <laughs> my man, my man's uh, composite, uh, composite notebook filled with all his sketches of all the girls in his class as sick Valkyries. Yes. No, it's just him making all the girls in his class as, as Dark Souls characters. It is. That's yeah. it's, 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 they've all joined his JR. It's Tifa got recruited and he renamed her Thecla. Yes. yes. <laughs> A million percent. That is what it is. Oh. It's so funny. Anyway. Yeah, that's her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, war stuff because that stuff is all happening in the war stuff, right? Yeah, they go to war. They go to war. He is fighting, and, and we have war. that that scenario. Re- really, the first bit of war we get is like uh the uh, it's like a red Dead redemption about, mission. They, it's like a yeah. Oh yeah, it is. We got to go. I heard they got a carriage down in that canyon, Arthur. Arthur, I heard. <laughs> now, Arthur, I know the last eight times we went down in a canyon, shit went bad. <laughs> but I promise you, Arthur, that this will not. Severian, I know I've tricked you 85 times. <laughs> he is the most Arthur character, by the way. The most gullible goofball. Oh, yeah. Severian? Yes, 100%. Yes. And this guy is like Dutch. This guy has huge Dutch energy. He does. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so they go to. They go to. They hear. That there is a stagecoach, that there's a, a, a some sort of vehicle um, uh, transporting money. It's yeah, money it's like, for yeah, the soldiers. It's an armored car. It's an armored yeah. carriage. Uh, and it's on its way to the front to give money to the soldiers that they're owed. And it's been laywayed uh, by, is that, is that the phrase? Is that a real phrase? You, uh, you spoonerized it. Waylaid. Yeah. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, waylaid. Mm-hmm. Clearly waylaid. you haven't played enough Baldur's Gate. Clearly not. <laughs> uh, I've, listen, I've played a hundred hours of Baldur's well, Gate. Well, you've been waylaid by enemies. My I friend. have many times. You're right. Um, and and they're going to go get it. And then when they show up, it's it's a bad situation. There are some Asians around it, 
who they fight and capture. Um, but then they find that the real threat is not the Asians. It's the deserters. It's the vagabonds. It's the army of people who are from the Commonwealth who want the money and who are like in the jungle around the road surrounding them, you know? Yeah, the camp followers. Right. It's the camp followers. It's the people who like latch onto the camp and, you know, sleep with the soldiers or do the cooking or whatever, right? And and many of whom have now deserted, right? It is also deserters, yep. actual deserters. Yeah. Um, and Severian has to go, like, do this RPG quest <laughs> <laughs> of, like, Grasach is like, all right. Actually, Severian says, let me handle it. I got a plan. <laughs> all right, Severian. We could go and fight him, or you could try to do diplomacy. And he tries to Just, do diplomacy. Just uh, Severian uh, fruitlessly saving and loading over and over again as he tries to brute force his way out. <laughs> yeah. Not realizing the dialogue that there's options. an easier option. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he does, sort of. He's He gets most of the way there. He convinces the... Well, what he says is, we're fucked. What the Gwasach, the commander, says is basically like, well, it's a shame we can't deal with these weird animal monster people inside of the armored car. Uh, and Severian's like, oh, I know what they are. I Yeah, I know them. Because he went through the Nessus Gate and saw what these animal people were before. Uh, oh, I do love that the guy's like, Grisach or whatever, he's yeah. like, yeah, when we rolled up on this carriage, I was like, cool carriage. And then I looked in there and I was like, what the fuck are these dudes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who are, and Severian's like, hey, I've seen those dudes yeah, before. Yeah, who, who's ever seen those creatures? I have, says yeah, Severian. Me. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Jonas told me about them. You know? I know all about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he makes a deal with them. I really like the deal with these. Like, the little glimmer you get into their, like, culture. It's <laughs> so good. It's really cool to me. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, which is that they that they are, I mean, again, they were made by, supposedly made to do, per Jonas, to do uh, the things that, that are too hard for people to do, for humans to do, or uh, things that men can't be trusted to do, like guard money. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And it's uh, worth uh, maybe comparing this to something like so they're called the Beast Men. So one of the obvious comparisons there is with the Zoanthrop, which, uh -huh. like, you know, imagine being GW, the translator and going through this manuscript and being like, these two words are used very differently. How do I translate them? Beast Men, Zoanthrop. Uh, but it's another kind of uh, run at an idea that comes up again and again in these books of um, uh being not quite human, right? Uh, being closer to animal than human proper. And what is uh, the zoanthrop is like one thing, but the beastmen in particular are defined by a, uh, well, one word is doggedness, right? An, a, a sort of <laughs> compulsion or an inability to not follow like their specific directives. So these uh, mastiff men, right? They look like dogs uh, in some ways. It's actually the other thing that's happening. Uh, you already talked about it. Austin is like, sometimes it's like a, uh, you see it at an angle or like they turn the head and like looks like a man and then it looks like a dog. It's also Severian Thecla, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, but this is like, and this is, uh, the Beastmen are like not uh, uh, vilified in the way that the Zoanthropes are, but they are like being positioned as somehow lesser or, or uh, you know, they're, they're not quite human because they do not have will. They have uh, things that they have to do and you can like, basically haggle with them in, a, in the manner of like fairy tale creatures in ways that you can like get their get convince yeah. them that they're uh that they are still following their orders even though they are doing something that they think is making them step outside like 
you convince them that they're following the spirit of the order rather than the letter of it because they're very yeah. reluctant to yeah. step out of the letter. It's a re- very similar to like uh, demonic contract stuff, right? Yep. Faustian bargain yeah. stuff. Yeah. Or fake court loophole right. you know, oh, yeah. that type mm-hmm. of stuff. It's all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and their thing is, you know, I, I love this little bit where, where he's like, uh, the, the guy inside is like, what do you want? And Severia is like, I want to save your lives. And then immediately he's like, ah, fuck, that was not the right call. <laughs> it's like, it's getting the one, the double ones in, uh, in Disco Elysium and hearing the, like, you failed sound. <laughs> it. And they go, we want to save our honor, like not our lives. And he's like, uh, yeah, honor's, honor is the higher life after all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I meant. Um, and yeah, convinces them and then also convinces the Asians, the captured Asians to help push this, this, uh, armored car out of a, a sort of ditch it's in or out of like a, you know, it's in mud, it's in Mm -hmm. mud, help, help push it out of the mud. And then like, we'll all get on top and some of us will push it and some of us will get inside of it and we'll, we'll, you know, get out of here. And then you'll, we'll get past, we'll send you home with the money. So like you did your job and then we'll, you'll send us back with an escort past your front line, back to our front line. And it all work out. And everyone's like, I guess you rolled right. Cause everyone agreed to this bullshit. <laughs> yeah. There's like absolute horse shit yeah. that he's selling them. I do love the appeal to the Asians specifically. Cause if, if with, Oh, oh yeah. With the beast men, quote unquote, he makes the appeal to honor and basically says like, hey, if you're here to safeguard the gold, not just from from us, but from or not just from the Asians, but from the people in the Commonwealth, you got to do that part. That's that's the honorable thing to the Asians. He says, you know, we are surrounded by the disloyal subjects of our Altark, who are thus the enemies of both the Altark and the group of 17. And and that's like somehow more dishonorable, right? Like if they're loyal, if they're disloyal to us, they're disloyal generally, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is fun. Yeah. I love uh, the Severian walks through all this. And then the Asian commander is like the light of correct thought penetrates every darkness. And he goes, <laughs> no, we haven't switched sides. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Study of correct thought eventually reveals the path of success. Yes, I said. All right. I've studied it. Behind our efforts, <laughs> let there be found our efforts. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> uh, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's good. Like, uh, and this is this is this is the human manages to make a deal with the dwarves and the elves, right? Yeah. Yep. This yes. is that style of fantasy writing, even though it's also war story shit. I mean, that's the other thing is like, it's 100% also classic, like people on different sides of the war have to come together to, to get through a third party, you know, uh, incoming attack type shit, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a classic war story thing. Yeah. So then they like get it moving and then don't the Asians all get obliterated? It goes bad. Yeah. Yeah. Alas. Uh, but it well, is who fun. Who was to know that those ladies with guns would come out of clouds? Who was to know? I will say it's fun to see like really clearly. You get the thing of like the Asian arquebuses are shooting the violet energy blasts while the Commonwealth weapons you have the like they have the fire. They have like the flamethrower type things. And it's like, oh, like, look at how these different, uh, a a cloud of crimson flame and reeking smoke. I really like, this is just like the world building 
person in me is like, ah, oh, yeah, I love it when when there are two different sides to a conflict that have iconic weaponry. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it's just cool. But yeah, the angels show up. Yep. What's her face from Overwatch? We, did we know about these? We didn't know about these, right? Yeah. I don't think uh-huh. we did know about these. No. Mercy shows up. You're right, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is. Yeah, we haven't heard about these because that's part of the reason why I think it works so well, because it's we haven't gotten something like this in a long time where Severian just presents matter of factly something. It's like and we all know that like we, we all know that the Autark has uh, these like angel women zipping like these Valkyries zipping around in the clouds and they dual wield pistols or whatever. We all know this so much that I don't even have to explain that to you. I just have to mention, oh, yeah, and then they came out of the sky. It's so funny. The end. Yeah, we haven't gotten any. We've gotten a lot of checks being cashed. I think that's why these, why this book I, does not hit. We've talked about it a lot, but like, I don't think anything in this reading other than maybe like the Foyla thing and then these angels, right? And maybe some of like him talking to the Asians, but like, there are some chapters of these books where like, as we've been talking about it, it's, it's been like, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good. This book really, I, I think Book of the New Sun at this point is really slowing down mm-hmm. because it's cashing checks that have previously existed or looping, you know, doubling, giving us the thing that we've already had. And so, like, I, I think for me while reading it and seeing reading this, I like this really stood out because it's like, ooh, a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even where the other new things are, like the the dwarfs riding the blind steed men that are the Asians. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was also unpredictable, but also is not that I don't love as much. I I should say, like, I'm actually kind of having a great time with this book so far. Mm. Um, I'm devouring it. I'm reading it more. I mean, partly I have the gift of novelty, right? Yes. Um, But I'm enjoying it as much as anything I've read before. And I think partly Mm. it's because the genre spaces it's in are really appealing to me. Um, I really mm-hmm. love the, sol- the the injured sol- soldiers gather around the hospital telling stories, frame story, anthology thing. Uh, and I'm, you know, I have told a lot of sci-fi war stories over the years. Right. Um, and so, like, this is a mode that does, that I respond pretty well to. Um, and uh, I, so I'm having, like, a fucking banger time. And even as I'm disagreeing with you know, even though I am not built to uh, to as the person who all of the big ideas, uh, the big spiritual ideas Gene is is building towards will work on. I'm someone it's so easy to imagine 16 year old Austin reading this book and then staying Catholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so there's so much for me to chew on right now mm-hmm. uh, right. that I am having a blast. And like even things like the unresolved ending of that last chapter which we we went back and forth on for a while. To be clear, I think that that sequence is really powerfully written uh, and is scary and is, um, uh, you know, the, the, the whole hazing ritual through the end of that, the reminder of the cruelty inside of this person is is well executed. And so, yeah, I have not yeah, yet hit, yeah. the, hit the wall of the Citadel that I thought I'd hit by now. You know, I mean, I think that's maybe it is like, I don't think that that chapter is well done. Right. Um, right. I think the ending is I think you're like, I think we're all in agreement. I think that that final scene is really powerful and says something even if we don't agree on what it says. Yep. Right. Yep. But I don't like the initiation ritual. <sighs> you don't like I him did, fighting I, the horse in the ring and it has talons. And I like it conceptually. I don't like reading it. I don't mm-hmm. think it's well written. Um, yeah. See, I, I don't like think that devouring I, it. It's so fun. 
for me, whenever Gene's kind of, you know, for, for lack of a better word, but whenever Gene's moving the camera around a lot, uh-huh. I think that it doesn't work as opposed to, uh, you know, the sanguinary fields fight that, that's like weird and fragmented and really kind of cuts back and forth very cleanly between two things. But I don't know. I, I, I think that it's really fragmented writing in a, in a not good way. Um, yeah, as opposed I, it's to different than the previous action the, the tenseness of that of the sanguinary field duel is like on mm. as all timer, you know? Yeah. This is yeah. a different mode for me. This is mm. dritzed with yeah, dual is. wielding swords. You know, this is I, I agree. And and to me, the fact that the book can get into that gear as it becomes this war story is fun. Uh, and is is uh, you know I have bounced off of so many books trying to do this sort of stuff, and it's that it's putting this directly in conversation with the end of the chapter that makes yeah. it palatable to me. You know, I it, think that's maybe part of it too. For me, is like I I I like this kind of war story, mm-hmm. but I don't like it in this genre. Mm. Like I, 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 the, the number of like fantasy books I have avoided because I know they are about a fantasy war right. is very high. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause I just don't think that that like, I, I don't know, maybe there's some of it too. That's just like, I've read a lot of, you know, I've read the Tim O'Brien stuff. Right. And I've read all quiet on the Western front, right, I've, right. you know, yep. read, you know, the big iconic war stories. And I, I don't think like fantasy doesn't, I don't like those combined genres with fantasy. I don't think so. Maybe this is just personal preference. Um, but I similarly think these like battle scenes, they just don't work yep. for me. And so maybe that's just like, for what my, it's like, I also think the battle scene we're about to get to gets boring. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think there's bits of it that work because that's, that's what we've been saying, right? Like, I think there are bits of description of things in chaos that work, but all of the, what we're about to get to is Severian and his unit have, or get shot at by artillery a bunch and they ride through the artillery and they get to the front and then they're like surrounded by other Wings of the Altarks army, and then the other side is the the Asian army, and there's lots mm. of like this unit moves forward and this move right. unit moves back. None of that mm-hmm. works for me. To be clear, <laughs> it's, uh, it's Gene Wolfe's uh, uh, sand table, yes, right, uh, right. Gettysburg uh-huh. game, a hundred percent. The stuff that works for me is the back at camp stuff. The stuff that works yeah. for me is the like speed with which he becomes friends with these other people he's fighting with. It's the mm-hmm. shitty corrupt commander. Um, it's the bit where they're like. Where he's like, oh yeah, I've never, I've never been uh, in cavalry before. I really know, but you know, but I know horses and I know men and women. And the guy goes right before he puts him in the, in the, in the, you know, pit with the woman riding the evil horse. He goes, well, your, your knowledge of women and, and horses sure is going to come in handy, bud. That to me <laughs> hits, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh no, I mean, yeah, some of the stuff here, the uh, like when they. When they hold hands, right? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of, I guess it's chapter 21, right? Yeah. Her hand damp with sweat and as thin as Dorcas's came sliding into mine. Until that moment, I had been certain she had fought before. Now I asked her, is this your first time too? I can fight better than most of them, she declared, and I'm sick of being called a whore. Mm-hmm. Together, we trotted after the column. Mm-hmm. Like, right. that might be the best, like, 50 words in the whole book to me, like <laughs> yeah, straight up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's so good. And I think uh, that's part of it for me is, is all of the troop movement stuff that falls flat is, is sort of uh, supported by all of the little moments that yeah. make it digestible, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So. I, yeah. Maybe my, also I haven't my read it before, too. which is like, right. I, I can't, it is. I am so. Uh, you yeah, know. When do you that think the lightsaber battle me. is going to start, Austin? Right, like any second now. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're right there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he pulls out the hilt for Terminus Est and right, like and a ghostly weapon comes out. Right, of it. God comes out happen. as a blade. You know, like it's gonna <laughs> <Yeah>. happen. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I I think maybe part of it too is like uh, Gene Wolfe loves to shortcut sometimes, yeah. and like the shortcutting is often really fun. And there's no shortcutting here. Yeah, um, yeah. in in the battle stuff, we so I think it really some really drags. And again, some of the grossest shit is in this battle in terms of you know, describing the savages on their side mm-hmm. to the east. And then across the way, there are the women who are mm-hmm. voluptuous and standing on top of elephants. And, yeah. you know, it's like, we are here, man. We are at the Orientalist fantasy war, you know? Right. Um, and I mean Orientalist in, like, the academic sense, in the sense of, like, it totally falls into describing the peoples of the Asians here as being from an era out of time, at mm-hmm. once beautiful uh, and leaving, you know, on the verge of collapse, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exotic and poisonous ex- yeah, and yes. uh, alluring yep. and deadly. Yep, and mm-hmm. also and also wrong, despite it's, yeah, 100%, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, hey, but it's got I, a oh, though. But the, cool. I, I was going to come in on this because, like, this to me is one of these moments that I think is Gene undoing himself because the showtel is just a showtel. All these other terms get used, and what they mean is flamethrower or laser gun, and they're European terms and Greek terms. But mm-hmm. the showtel is just a showtel. It is italicized, though. It is, and that but that to me is a, is I mean, it's saying something about GW, the translator, I guess. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Which is the GW has decided that they have a sword that has a long double-edged blade whose forward half is curved into a semicircle, and he's just going to call that a showtel because it is a showtel. But everything yep. else gets a little fantasy name, you know? Which is, of course, is just a Greek name or an Italian name or whatever. So I think there's something interesting about that to me. Mm-hmm. Showtel is already exotic enough, you know? Mm. There was or no something. question of fighting, only of seeking in some way to live. I parried a blow from a twisted weapon that, that was neither sword nor axe. The piebald reared, and I saw an arrow protruding from his chest like a horn of fire. A rider crashed against us, and we fell into the dark. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. (laughs) It does. But it also, I mean, you know, to talk about the Orientalism of the thing too, right, and the out-of-timeness, like, the showtel being just a showtel is cool. The showtel being just a showtel is also, like, the Asians are a timeless horde of arrow shooters and old weapon users who are just using, you know, the tide of bodies to make it happen. Mm Though they do also have the big art. Oh, also mechs show up here for the first time. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that the (laughs) tower, the walking towers that shoot energy blasts are just here. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a straight up Gundam. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It jumped into the sky and I saw a brilliant flash of light, (laughs) a a red and blue color strike across (laughs) its behind. Uh, interesting okay cool mm-hmm, cool, mm-hmm. cool but that's where we uh ended yeah is uh with the, the the battle going battle raging and presumably severian being knocked out in the end yeah and then we've got yeah. uh just leaving us on the title of the next chapter the pelagic mm-hmm. argosy sites land what's that about that's a phrase we've heard before yeah what's uh yeah. who said that it was uh, the phrase to say at the House Absolute to recognize Vodalus' as spy. Oh, interesting. In the next chapter, or the next reading, we're, it's actually a pretty short reading. We're going to be reading until what? Uh, chapter 30, I believe? I think so. I thought Maybe, you said let me check. Mm, 33. I think it's only, let me check. 33 is what I have in my mind. 
Let me look. But no, you might be right. You're, you're correct. It is 33. No, is no, 33. no. Is it? Oh, it is. It is. It is. Yep. It is Chapter 33. Yep. 23 to 33. Yep. Yeah. 23 to 33. So um, not that many pages, like 50 pages, but uh, 5,000 things. I'm excited. Yeah. I see so these titles. Have, I, I see these I, chapter titles. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? I, I did a little pre-reading. Uh-huh. Maybe this is also why like, I'm just down on this section. Because you've read ahead. Is like, well, yeah. Poisoned by, um, by immediate knowledge, not even past knowledge. Yeah. You know what? And what's funny is I actually skipped a bunch of chapters and like read, read way ahead. Mm. And it's just like we're on like a slow little treadmill through this whole reading. And then we're going to go down like a water slide. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's just a lot's going to happen really quickly. Um, and I think I have dread about that. <laughs> just fundamentally, fundamental dread. Um, but all also a safety of being able to log on to this call, right? And say, "Now, Michael, what happened?" <laughs> <laughs> I always love to be able to just ask Michael what happened. It's it's. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's a higher power in the world that can make sense of it for me. And the higher power <laughs> is Michael. That's right. Saint um, Michael. So we'll be back with that in the in the next episode. Um, up through 33. Mm-hmm. Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song for the show. Sam Beck made the podcast art. Jordan Mallory edits the show. And, uh, you know, the uh, Brad does the Foley. <laughs> and uh, our executive editor, which is also Jordan Mallory, uh, edits the Foley in. So, mm-hmm. yep. very important. Jordan, uh, just for this one, can you just leave in our the fo- any Foley we did, any placeholder Foley, just because uh, Brad really overstepped earlier. I just want to make sure, really pr- make the, you know, I, like Severian, want to punish. It's like Nietzsche <laughs> said, trust <laughs> in anyone in which the urge to punish is strong. Uh, and uh, that's definitely what he said. He didn't say it the other way. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, get Brad's fully out of here. Just leave whatever bullshit sounds we made in. <laughs> nah, you could put the Foley in. Okay. You can make sure to get all the Foley in. <laughs> Depending on if you think it's funny or not. <laughs> uh, the uh, You want to make the Patreon pitch, uh, Michael Watts? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, remember that we have a Patreon. Uh, we do not advertise anywhere. We only grow by word of mouth. So we are supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, this will get you access to all sorts of shell by genre bonus episodes. The most recent of which, uh, as of if you're listening to this, you know, when it drops, uh, it would have come out last week. And it is the three of us discussing the advanced Dungeons and Dragons monster manual as previously discussed, uh, remember that you need to listen to that to figure out what is the best letter in the monster manual. Did yeah. we make a decision on that call about what the next bonus episode is? Games of Cud. Oh, it is. We did. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We'll be yeah. Uh, playing uh, uh, Ks of Cud, which like is a roguelike, right? Like that's what we would call it. Yeah, uh, sure. We have some guidance on there about how to play that. There are some other modes to play it in that mm-hmm. reduce the roguelikishness of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the uh, best RPGs of all time. Yeah. According to Pace Magazine. Yeah. Did you know that? I did I've not. heard that. We, you want to talk about that right. list real quick? Because I think there are people who are listening to this who maybe want to go read that list. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's maybe true. Yeah, we uh, Pace, uh, which, you know, we've, uh, Austin and I both, I was about to say we evolved. I don't think mm-hmm. Michael's written for Pace. Gotta get you in there. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'd um, figure out what I could talk about. I would not have a career without Paste Magazine, frankly. Yeah. I would. And so, you know, I've written uh, lots of things for Paste. And um, uh, Austin, you did too yep. back in the day when you were writing a bunch of stuff. Some of the best stuff and, I've written was for Paste. And so, and you know, and and uh, big shout out to Paste for taking sometimes a risk on a thing that other publications will not. Yeah. I don't know that uh, a a best fifty RPGs of all time list is that. I kind of think it's the no, other thing. No, I think thing. that's it. I, but I, I think, think the no way you brave did enough it to do that list is the is the bravery. I think the the execution is the bravery, not the top fifty list. Yeah. So Dia Lucina, uh helped, um, not helped, like guided. Yeah. Uh, this mechanism of voting between uh, Moises Tavernus and me and Mark Nomaden, Normaden. And uh, Garrett, who is the editor over there, and we did a bunch of voting and a bunch of not voting and a bunch of selecting and a bunch of arguing. Uh, and then I said, I have to go to work. I don't have time for this. And then they all finished it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the least amount of work of all the people involved. Uh, but we produced this big list of the 50 best RPGs of all time. And like all lists, it is partial and mostly nonsense, but um, at its conceptual core. But people have enjoyed uh, checking it out. And um, I think like it, the uh, best lists. It um, it initiates conversation and asks for engagement, um, yes. which instead of trying to be, defi- I mean, it it makes its cases, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. and keeps the cuts in there, right? Yeah, keeps the cuts in there. You even make like the book of the new songs somewhere comparison. in the thirties or something. It's I number think. twenty, Cameron. Number twenty. Yeah, mm-hmm. go read. Uh, go read what Cameron thinks about Caves of Cut. Yeah, and but, uh, other yeah, things. you should do that. Check it out uh, if you if you like RPGs, but you you don't have like a super deep bench on that, and uh, you are unenthused by like other lists that appear that are just like the top fifty bestsellers of all time, essentially with with no deviation from that. Mm-hmm. Um, the paste list, I think, will will serve you well. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of people go, "Hey, I don't know what half of these are," and that to <laughs> me means it's a good list. Uh, yeah, so you yeah. can check that out, learn a little bit about Caves of Cud, which we will be talking about for the next bonus episode at patreon.com slash range touch. We'll also have uh, Jason, is it Grinblatt? JGB, yeah, yeah, Jason Grinblatt. Who is, what is his title? Is he like the, I don't know, guy who Fella? makes it most of the time? Cudmaster. Cudmaster. Uh, I don't we'll think be, We'll be, I think, maybe talking with him a little bit about uh, his relationship with Book of the New Sun because it is uh, truly an intertext for Caves of Cud. Right. Yeah, I think maybe lead writer. Lead writer. I don't. I don't, okay. I don't know exactly what Jason's title is, but um, certainly it leads the writing team or has been leading the writing team. If we got that wrong, Jason, apologies. But sorry. In, in that thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> co co made with uh, primarily Brian Bucklew and then a bunch of other people who do great work. Yep. Uh, so yeah, you can check that out. And if uh, Patreon is not your thing, if if you want something that you can hold in your hands, not just something you can listen to with your ears, you can help us out by going to rangetouch.com/shop, which will give you a link to our T Public store. Where uh, I don't think I've mentioned this on air yet, we now have a Book of the New Sun shirt. That's good. Is that true? I need to. I need we, to buy we, one. We do. Yeah, we do. It's. Uh, it is the. Oh, yeah. The quote: "Apprentices alone wear shirts." cited to book of the new sun so uh wear this shirt to have people ask you lots of questions about your shirt <laughs> already, is- already answered by my shirt yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. we've also got a uh don't deny me the mothman shirt that mm. i have i have purchased in the um uh tie-dye colorway and it it's good yeah yeah <laughs> i should get some more of these shirts i'm I have, glad I that mothman turned out in a print 
It did. It turned out great. Michael drew the Mothman. You yeah. drew that Mothman. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing that doesn't come up that often that Michael can draw. Damn. Like, we don't talk about that. We but don't. It's, it is the case that Michael can do visual <laughs> art. Did you draw that little <laughs> lizard guy? What? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Art the Gecko. The Gecko. The gecko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Damn. Yeah, I did that too. Iconic Gecko. <laughs> the range touch iconic gecko that almost why no one listened on to this shirt about. Yeah, why haven't we not slapped that gecko on a shirt? Did y'all not do any? Are oh, you the Purple Dreamer shirt? Yeah. yeah. You should have merged out that Homestuck show. What are y'all I, doing? I was too busy making <laughs> I was reading so many forum posts. I could not design t-shirts. You should have just put them on a t-shirt. <laughs> like an all-over print. Do you know what I mean? Like a, yeah. like a really uh-huh. like no, I, fashion I forward, you know? I mean, I just don't, uh, you know, of all the, uh, am I more um, worried about being sued by um, <laughs> one entity versus Bethesda? Yes, actually, weirdly <laughs> enough. Uh, the likelihood of cease and desist uh, this is from fair. one versus the other is weirdly. Foucault, thankfully, will never send me a cease and desist. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, yeah. But yeah, we should probably throw that gecko up there. Yeah, people did That's like that. Kirk is never going to come for us. Kirk Hamilton's never going to come for us. <laughs> Kirk was on the, you were on, Kirk was on the podcast when Kirk, yeah. when you said, I'm going to make this t-shirt. Yeah. And legally, because Kirk didn't say, no, don't make that t-shirt then, you're good. That's yeah. the law. It was like a verbal contract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's exactly it. I like the engaging the Liminoid shirt quite a bit. People wear that. Yeah. Yeah, people wear, these are shirts. Yeah. I'm just saying people actually wear it as opposed to like just, there are some things we have that no one, no one has purchased. What do you, mm-hmm. which ones? No one's purchased. I don't want to say. Okay, well, send me later because I'm going to buy them and wear <laughs> them. I think if you bought Just King Things is my favorite podcast, Kirk Hamilton as a shirt, you'd be, you'd be increasing, increasing the profit margin is what I'm saying. <laughs> Put it in the cart. <laughs> Uh, right the, now, uh, it's happening. Although, I and I think maybe Kirk owns that shirt, which is funny. Too. There you go. If I not, bet we Kirk wears that shirt. <laughs> we gotta get him one. I okay. wear that Foucault well, shirt pretty often. Get it? Yeah. Didn't wear it. I think okay, Foucault and rhetoric is perverted poetry, or maybe our most popular. Uh, yeah, rhetoric is perverted poetry is extremely popular. Yeah. Um. Well, we'll be back in. A short amount of time. I don't have the calendar in front of me, so I can't tell you exactly how long, but Two we'll be weeks, back I soon. Think. Yeah, with, uh, let's look here. Boop, boop, boop. Yes, two weeks with the uh, third episode of um, Citadel the Autark. After that, we will have the fourth episode of Citadel the Autark. And after that, we will have Book of the New Earth. Book <laughs> nope. of the New Earth. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's what it's called or not. It's just called yeah, Earth book in our Earth. big spreadsheet list. Yeah, Book of mm-hmm. the New Earth. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Goodbye. Amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. Oh.